world, and welcome to another fun, fun episode of Here's a Guy. Uh, we're happy to be with you here this week. If you may recall from last week, we're in part two of this experimental thing we're trying where um, last week all of our topics function as part ones. This week we're going to tell the part twos, but more on that in a bit. First, let's all introduce ourselves. I am Alex, coming to you as always live from here in St. Louis, Missouri. I'm joined by my two illustrious co-hosts, the first of which being my older brother, Cody, coming to us from Illinois. Cody, how are you? I'm doing just fine. Uh, I feel kind of weird because this is the first time in a couple weeks where nothing insane happened to me today that I can talk about. So, yeah, you I know, I, I feel a little feel a little a uh, little off kilter, but we're going to get in plenty of weirdness uh, later on when we start right. introducing our topics, I feel like. You didn't have to like go to any businesses that were inside like other businesses this week <laughs> that didn't make any sense yeah. to be in the same building. No, I did not. No, well, that's too bad. Yeah. I I did not go. I did not go to like a shoe store inside of a slaughterhouse or anything right. like that. <laughs> I, I have expected you to tell me that you bought like your produce today at a pawn shop or something. I was waiting for this kind of like reveal <laughs> or like uh, this guy's this guy's got three watermelons on hock. <laughs> you had to go consult a tax attorney, but you had to walk through a Qdoba. <laughs> um, so uh, that's I good. La- I got LASIK surgery at a PF Chang's <laughs> earlier. It was, uh, it was a good day. And if you have any funny versions of that riff, uh, shoot us an email. Here's a mailbox at gmail.com. <laughs> I really hope this is the one that really opens the floodgates and we get like everyone who's ever listened sending us a riff. They're all just going to be like, I've got a failed podcast in an apartment. <laughs> well, look. That's where that happens, though. Yeah. <laughs> That's like the failed podcast store. Um, so, uh, in the meantime, I'm also joined, as always, from Indianapolis. It's Jack John. How are you doing, Jack John? I'm doing good. I did the Midwest homeowner thing today after I got off work. I cracked a beer and, and cleaned my garage, so oh. the world is exciting, and everything is my oyster, and I'm just living my I'm almost 45-year-old life right now. You are warming up for dad. You are warming up for that. I, I, oh, yeah. I'm a peak dad in terms of just, like, living in the suburbs and just, like, fully embracing just, like, the the task list that I have that's just complete bullshit and just like cleaning the garage See, and like laying stones you, in the backyard for my grill, like all that shit. I've been eating all of it up. You're doing it better than the actual Midwest dads because they have kids. Yeah, I don't have a kid that but I can. You, you don't have yet. to mess with that. You yeah. could just you could just do dad stuff without all the hard parts. Yeah. I, I skipped a step. I've been drinking whiskey, but I've got nobody oh. to hit while I'm doing it. It's 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 kind of feel like I'm missing something. Um. So, yeah, it, it, that's kind of been the week for you because, like, I – so, uh, Jack, you're you're an hour ahead of the two of us, obviously. Yeah. And at about – at, like, roughly 4 p.m. yesterday when I'm still at work, I get a Snapchat from Jack John, and it's a video, and I open it up, and it's clearly a beautiful day outside in Indianapolis. And um, he's walking through his yard, and I see him walk up to his grill, and he opens up the grill. I don't know. Maybe it's because, like, I was at work and my mindset was, was – you know, different, but I was so taken aback because he opens up the grill and it's like, I don't know what I was expecting, but what it was, was a fucking huge kielbasa. <laughs> and I, I don't know why that caught me so off guard, but it did. It, it's probably the la- like the last thing you expect on a grill. 
Yeah, like, I, I I hadn't considered. I don't. There's no reason why that wouldn't be good, but I just hadn't thought yeah. about it. It was one of those things where. So, my, my... so what you're saying, so what you're saying is that while you were at work, Jack John sent you a picture of his great big sausage. Is is that what you're telling me? Only way to get only you way to get, get fired for you could get fired for looking at that in the office. You know. Listen, only way to get me through the day sometimes. All right. Cody, you could get pictures <laughs> of my sausage too if you had a Snapchat. It's it's just that easy. That would be an incredibly funny bit if Cody signed up for Snapchat in 2022. <laughs> I was like, I signed up for Instagram in 2018, which was a pretty good bit, but I think this would be even funnier. I mean, I started, I got back on Twitter in 2020, so anything's possible. That was your mistake. Yeah, when, yeah. when I hit 50, when I hit 50, I'll finally join TikTok. Oh, God. Uh, I'll never do that. Um yeah, uh, I I certainly hope if if I actually do that, you have permission to hit me with a golf club. How uh so how did you I know you showed me but I forgot. How did you um like plate the kielbasa? What did you do with it? Yeah. So I uh just put it on the grill for like 5 minutes just to get a little bit of like uh like a little bit of a char and I put some hot sauce over it just like to let that cook in. And then I, I nicely sliced it up. Uh, and then I plated it with a big ass thing of pretzels and an IPA because my wife was uh, not home last night, so I just had uh, some grilled kielbasa pretzels and a beer for dinner. That is such a great solo dad. Oh meal. yeah. <laughs> and I, I like excited it. I was like, "This is the my wife isn't home tonight dinner." <laughs> so, um, first of all, while we're mentioning the weather, can we just talk for a moment about how goddamn weird it is to be doing this while it's still light out? Cause we started doing this in like, was it November of last year? September. Or maybe a little before that. Yeah. Was, yeah. yeah. It was, it, it was like late it, September. It was so it was the fall dark, essentially constantly. Yeah. 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 So it, it was always, I, this is the first time I can remember doing this with like the sun shining. It feels jarring to me. Now, are, are you saying that because the glare in my camera is fucking with you? Cause, yeah. cause I understand yeah. that that's no, yeah. no. I actually thought of that when I came in here and sat down and there's, you guys can't see it on camera, but there's a window to my left yeah. And like, there's light coming through. Yeah. It That's help. not normal for when I record stuff. So it doesn't help that Alex is flanked by two massive windows that just have beams of white light coming from them. I'm very angelic. No, I the I actually so while we're while we're making references to things that the people listening cannot see at all, <laughs> um, I have my big overhead light on in this room, which sits like right above my head. So if I take my hat off, it makes my male pattern baldness just absolutely hilarious, which is why I normally turn the overhead lights off, like if we're streaming or something. Because, <laughs> like, I don't need any help. I think typically you're wearing a hat also. Typically. You're a noted hat guy, so usually you have yeah. one on. That's I, true. Well, you've, gotta... got, you've got to become a hat guy when you are, like, four hairs away from Homer Simpson. Well, I've, I've got hair, and I'm a hat guy. I actually got a message from one of my supervisors. So I was like, hey, your haircut looks good today. And I was like, oh, I got that a week ago. I just wear hats in all my meetings. <laughs> but, and yeah, that's... that's we People always talk about like sort of the weird different genetic paths that Cody and I got. I got... I got like I didn't get the thinning hair problem, but you can pull off a hat a lot better than I can for whatever reason, so... I think your yeah, head your, your head your shape head is more is, conducive to it. Yeah. Yeah, your your head is not meant for hats. 
Yeah, I'm, no. I'm picturing it, and Alex in a hat mostly just looks weird in my head. Yeah, I mean, I got a couple that look okay, but even still, yeah, um, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't develop that 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 trait. Like Alex with yeah. like a big new era hat is just funny to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so speaking of grilling. Uh, once again, over the weekend, I went up and visited our family up in Illinois. Cody was around as well. I wanted to do some morel mushroom hunting, um, which we didn't find that many, but, um, it was the, I think the first morel trip where I didn't walk away with, I never, I didn't find one tick on me, which is very unusual. Ooh, and we were out good. there for like damn near three hours. So I'll, I'll call, I'll, I'll take the wins where I can get them. But for dinner, um, our dad grilled some asparagus. And Ooh, I, it seemed yeah. like it seemed like the rest of you had not not had grilled asparagus before. And it it's had so, been it's, a. I had only had it like once, and it had been a while. But I remembered how good, or I remembered yeah. that I liked it a lot. Now, did he actually like leave it on like the grill irons, or did he wrap it in foil and put like butter and seasoning and shit on it? Left it on the foil, and I I prepared it because he hadn't done it before. And so, what I had him do was drizzle a little bit of olive oil on them, add some. Yeah. Seasoning from it, I'm going to do a quick plug here. Um, the grocery store in our hometown, Meehan's IGA, they have um, uh, some really good, one in particular, their ribeye seasoning blend, which you can buy on Amazon. Um, it's really good on on beef and vegetables. It's really good on both. Yeah. And so sprinkle also, a little bit. Also, it does wonders for a pork chop, too. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Now, there's. I feel like every guy has one seasoning that they just swear by for the rest of their life. It's great uh, for stuff. me. I'm I'm in Indiana, so I have St. Elmo's steak rub, mm. and it goes on fucking everything. Nice. The Meehan's, I'd say, is most similar to like a Lowry's seasoning salt. Ooh, very, very good. similar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so sprinkled a little bit of that on, along with some cracked black pepper. Um, yeah. I said, skip the foil, put it straight on the grate. Got nice and tender. He left it on the exact right amount of time. He knows what he's doing with the grill. Great stuff. I mean, how good is grilled asparagus? So good. Grilled asparagus. Mm -hmm. yeah. When we first I, got our house and I started grilling out, sorry to cut you off, Cody, I did vegetable kebabs for like a month straight. Like every oh, yeah. meal came with a vegetable kebab. Grilled vegetables like right on the fucking grill. Nothing better. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, that is like my favorite way to prepare vegetables. And in a bit of serendipity here, I'm going to tell Jack John about a delicacy that Alex and I had growing up. Which not only Ooh, I know, I know where you're going with that this. Yep. that involves the use of said Meehan seasoning heavily, but also I feel like it's just going to tickle Jack John's ribs a bit. Uh, grilled cabbage. Ooh. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of reasons why I love that. There's a lot of reasons why I love that. I think didn't mm -hmm. we didn't we learn this method from Meehan himself, who owns the grocery store? I think Big that's Mike, where, yes, sir. I think that's where we got it from. Was Mike me? He always man. used to. He always used to uh, for several events that he would throw. He would, you know, cook big batches of stuff for for all the the folks out there. And one of his uh, favorite sides was grilled cabbage. If you, a guy named Big Mike tells you this is his favorite anything, you cook that because you know it's amazing. Yeah, what the method is? You cut it into quarters. You put it in foil. You add butter and the seasoning. And you grill it up, and it gets so nice and tender. I haven't had that in a long time. Oh, we should do amazing. that again. I was gonna say next time we're all we're all in the neighborhood. I'm gonna yeah. suggest that maybe we grab some some cabbages and throw throw some on the grill. 
You guys um, come over to my house. We'll just grill a bunch of cabbages. <laughs> <laughs> my- We're going to be the first people to put that <laughs> recipe in a recipe book, and it's going to be called it's- Cabbage Henry. Yeah, and it's it's still got the same like four pages of bullshit like history of why I love Cabbage Henry. <laughs> when do I grill the fucking cabbage? I've been scrolling for ten minutes. So I had my first grilling adventure um, on Saturday, which was that. Um, so my my usual first breaking back into the grilling mood, I'll do hot dogs a lot of times. So that's an easy one. Yeah, but these right. in particular were. Um, Joya's Deli here in St. Louis, a wonderful, wonderful sandwich shop. Oh, Cer- hell yeah. Certain times a year they will release, uh, like their, their specialty is hot salami, and they've got a bunch of sandwiches where that's the, the focal point. But they oh, will yeah. do, they will take the hot salami and they will make it into hot dogs um, with some, you know, like anise seasoning and sometimes a little bit of cheese in it. And I grilled those up, sauteed some peppers and onions, mixed up. I know people get upset about ketchup on hot dogs but what i do is i mix up some ketchup blend it with a little bit of hot sauce though it's kind of like a spicy ketchup go easy on it not too much it was good stuff so got me back into the grilling mood i'm usually just like a mustard and relish guy but that sounds fantastic i was gonna say alex alex is tough for for hot dogs not liking mustard or pickles right that's tough it's kind of hard for you it's kind of hard for you to be a traditionalist about it i mean my ideal and this goes less with like grilled hot dogs but I mean, you could do it with a grilled hot dog. My ideal hot dog topping is chili and cheese and diced onions. I think oh, yeah, I, yeah, I think yeah. a coney is the best. If you're um, gonna do sure. it, do yeah. it big. But if you have to, like, if you're just cooking it at home and you don't feel like getting real good chili, like, just right. like, like a line of mustard, fucking ready yeah. to go. And I don't. Here's the thing. I understand that me not being into mustard or relish is a distinctly me problem. But people who get snooty about what you put on a hot dog, like motherfucker, it's a let's fucking be, hot dog. Well, let's be honest. We're both eating hot dogs, okay? <laughs> yeah. How the fuck can you get this snooty? Is the, this is the most white trash food and I'm gonna, that exists and doesn't come in a can. I'm gonna upset our friend Mitch. He's gonna be really mad when he hears it because Mitch, if you recall from uh, his guest episode, he's, he lives in Chicago and they got really strong opinions. They put salads and shit on theirs, which is probably good yeah. if that's what you're into. It, but it's good, but it's so unnecessary. <laughs> Yeah, see, I I don't mind a Chicago style hot dog, yeah. and Mitch and I talked a little bit about it when uh, he guest hosted. I'm not a ketchup on hot. I don't eat a lot of ketchup. I yeah. I don't dislike yeah. ketchup. I just don't eat a lot of it, ketchup? so I don't typically put it on hot dogs. This, but I don't get offended when somebody does, though. Yeah. <laughs> like that's that seems like the wrong thing to get mad about. I'm kind of in the opinion where, and I don't know why I feel like this way, but ketchup feels almost like childlike where it's like no no i'm not gonna use ketchup i'll use a real adult sauce i have grown to like it less and less as time's gone on um but there are certain situations where it's applicable um i mean it's still it still slays on some mcdonald's fries yeah let's be honest there yeah yeah um yeah mitch is gonna send us a death threat when he hears this (laughs) oh man um can i can we uh real quickly uh talk i know we're trying to keep this reasonably short can we talk about the the thing that the grilling out season always conjures up for me and alex you might remember this mm-hmm. i think you were in school when we did when we're in high school when we did this but my like i think junior year of high school me and a bunch of my friends uh somebody had a grill and we decided that let's just grill out in the fucking parking lot. Cause we had off campus lunch and there was no time to go anywhere. Cause it was like a 30 minute lunch at most. Yeah. So we're like, 
Someone just run to the grocery store. They have this like famously cheap deal where you can get a bunch of meat. So for like a week straight, we all just grill. There was like six or seven of us just grilling in the parking lot every day at lunch. Yeah, I remember getting in on that when you all were doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just imagining like somebody driving like to go to their lunch from, from their actual job and they just look over and like just far enough off of school property, there's like 13, 12 year olds just grilling. <laughs> Oh, the, well, we were 16, and it was well, very yeah. much on school property. I mean, it, it was probably something the school could have gotten heavily sued for. It's, it's just like in the back of some It's in the back of some kid's truck. You're too lazy to actually pull it out, so you're just all in the tail bed, just like grilling up. Yeah, the, the there was is, one day where we did that exactly, <laughs> yes. The thing is, like, and, and I don't know, I guess it never, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the show before, but like, it never even dawned on me at the time that this was outlandish, but like I tell people and they're shocked. Our high school was so like rural and poor. We didn't have a cafeteria. There was no lunch. <laughs> we, we had to figure it out for ourselves. And so yeah. like they, they really weren't super critical of what we did because we, we didn't have yeah. a whole lot of other options. This, this is as good of, a, of an option as anything else. At least we're not, yeah. you know, doing something worse. Like, look if your if your truck catches on fire, just roll it off school property first. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I could sit here and talk about grilling all night, and perhaps sometime we will. But as promised, we got a lot to get into. We're here to talk about some guys. Uh, in particular, we're here to talk about some guys that related to last week's guys. And so let's jump right into it. Jack, can you help me out, please? Yeah, I think I remember it. It's uh. The guys. So, as mentioned before, all three of our topics this week are going to be follow-ups to last week. Um, whether they're actually part twos or just stories that intersect. Um, so, we're going to go in the same order we went last week. And um, this would be the time to go and listen to last week's episode if you have not. I know it's yeah. long, but all three stories were good. Yeah, we'll... And all three stories are we'll, going to be we'll good this week. We'll sit here for a couple of... We'll sit here for a couple hours while you yeah. go listen to the other episode. We'll do we'll it in re- back up. We'll do it in real time. There's um, just two and a half hours of dead space of yeah, us like just like, mildly talking to each other, just like dicking around on our phones and stuff. Um, all right, so we're gonna what go. We do most weeks anyway. Yeah. So in the spirit of that, we're gonna go in the same orders last week, which means uh, we're starting off with Cody. Cody, who's your guy this week? So as mentioned last week, um, a guy that popped up last week. Talking about the first Baron Jeffries, that's right, George Jeffries, the original hanging judge, the bloody judge himself. One of the original, like, hard-ass legal figures in in uh, 17th century Europe, which was saying something, because they were still, like, burning people back yeah. then. So, to distinguish yourself for being a, a bigger asshole than the rest of them is pretty noteworthy, I think. Um, later, uh, so George Jeffries later begat by judge Smales. <laughs> sent boys younger to you to the chamber. Danny didn't want to do it. Felt I owed it to them. Owed it to them. Yep. Oh man. He was born in uh, 1645. We got a Welsh guy. This is our first official Ooh. Welsh guy. I S- surprised it took us this long, frankly. Yeah. Well, it, there's probably a million we could do, but we couldn't pronounce yeah. any of the names in them. Well, sure, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So George Jeffries was born in 1645 in Wales in a little village called Wrexham. Wrexham, huh? Go ahead. Go, go ahead and do it. Go ahead. Somebody, <sighs> somebody want to do it? Wrexham. Damn near Kiltsum. There you go. I, I fought everything in my being to not do that. I didn't. I, I tried. I thought about just telling you not to do it, but then I was like, if I if I said that to me, would I listen? And the answer, of course, was no. So I just I've, figured I'd get it out of the way. I've made worse jokes to the audience. Yeah. Didn't want to do it. Felt I, I feel like, owed it to them. I feel like our audience. Oh, that's good. I feel like our audience is the kind of people that also made that joke before we got it out. Yeah. But now that it's been addressed, um, he was born into a, a high-achieving family. Like almost every psycho from this time, he comes from money. Um, his great-grandfather was a judge. Uh, the rest of his family were very high achievers as well. Uh, most of them went into either like the legal profession or um, the clergy some way, somehow. Hmm. Um, he was born into a family of devout Protestants. He was one himself. Uh, he picked the former option. Uh, embarked on a legal, uh, legal career and quickly distinguished himself from his other judges with th there were a couple of very famous quirks that this guy had that kind of made him a household name among the legal profession. Uh, he had an odd combination of, I mean, severity and this fanatical devotion to letter of the law and like this tendency for handing down really harsh punishments but he also had this quirky and some kind, uh, sometimes dark sense of humor that he would often like pull out zingers in the middle of very serious moments of, of capital trials, hmm. which led a lot of people and uh, just kind of a spoiler alert. Uh, a lot of people are going to at some point conclude that this guy's kind of nuts. <laughs> and so and they may well have been right. And so for a little bit of context here, am I remembering right that the background was that you were researching last week's topic and you found this guy and he was so good you... No. Or was it the opposite? I was research it was the other way around. I was oh, wow. researching this guy first and then I stumbled on the uh, bombshell that was Titus Oates <laughs> and I figured I can't, uh, I can't not do this. Uh, also, Oates. I feel... I Go felt ahead. like Titus's story made a little more sense to do first to kind of yeah. give you the sure. background of all this it's amazing in research what we come across just on like just happened to come in titus broke me yeah like, yeah there was a lot there was, was a lot there that was a real mind fuck of a topic yeah so uh but for instance uh he told a pair of defendants <laughs> who were accused from uh accused of stealing lead from the roof of a church uh that their religious zeal was so great as to carry them to the top of the church. <laughs> and then that's went like a, into that's this a, tirade about how this is nearly a capital crime and I should damn near hang you. I say that's a <laughs> that's like something we would do. That's a joke <laughs> yeah. we'd make. So while his star continued rising in the English legal system, his behavior on the bench was at times erratic and kind of odd. Um this did not seem to get in his way too much. Uh, he continued to move up to more prestigious legal positions. This is where we're going to start glossing. Over. There's a lot of this story that I'm, I have to gloss over a fair amount of because a lot of it's just old school English legal and noble technicalities and explaining what that means. And that it's the kind of shit that even I find boring. Yeah. And it's really not super necessary information. So I'm just going to gloss over a lot of it. 
there are apparently millions of different judicial positions in uh, 17th century England, and they all have distinct names, and I can't tell any of them apart, so I'm not going to bother going into his specific positions. But he continued moving up the ladder, uh, including, as we discussed last week, presiding over many of the trials of the accused in the quote-unquote Popish plot. A plot Mm -hmm. that, if you remember, uh, a bunch of people got executed over and turned out to be complete and total horseshit. Yeah. (laughs) It was a, it was a whole thing as they say it was, (laughs) it was made the fuck up and a lot of people died because of it. Um, and Jeffries condemned many of these accused as traitors, uh, in his trademark style, just verbally excoriating these people as they were falsely sentenced to death. Um, a blunder, which as apparently was frequently the case with these English nobles would not be held against him in any form or fashion at any time. Of course not. It was just a big old oopsie. Thankfully, <laughs> things change and we've moved past that point <laughs> the, in our, life, or our society. The, the, the legal terminology, a big old oopsie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to get into his personal life just a little bit, uh, Jeffries was married twice. His first marriage was... Uh, Fairly unremarkable. After his first wife passed away, he married a 29-year-old widow named Anne, who was rumored to have a temper even greater than that of Jeffrey's, and that is saying something. Because that's another thing he would do in trials, is if if you pissed him off even just a little bit, he would absolutely lose his shit. Um, But apparently... (laughs) Young Anne had a temper that was even worse. Uh, She was... The, the joke was that there was absolutely nobody on earth who could make the, the hanging judge quake with fear except his wife. Um, the, the prevailing gag was that while St. George had killed a dragon to rescue and marry the princess, Jeffries must have missed the princess and married the dragon by mistake. <laughs> That's just fun. Yeah. But they stayed married uh, until he died. In 1683, he was made the Lord Chief Justice, which is basically the highest judicial position you can have in uh, in England at this time. Kind of like the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Um, shortly thereafter, he presided over a big, big trial, the Algernon Sidney trial. Now, Algernon Sidney was in uh, one of the chief architects of what was known as the Rye House plot. This, again, is where there's a bunch of old school British mumbo jumbo that means absolutely fucking nothing in the context of the story. So I'm going to gloss over what the Rye house plot is, except to say that it was another assassination plot on uh, King Charles II and his brother, James. The difference was this one was actually real. Yeah. Um, this was, this was a, a real thing. People were actually trying to kill the King. Um, interestingly enough, the reason behind this uh, was that, they were too sympathetic to the Catholics. So not that they were Catholic like Titus Oates was, but like you just don't hate Catholics enough. <laughs> I assume the, the, uh, the, the, the main conceit of the Rye house plot was that they lured the King down with the promise of a pretty good Reuben. <laughs> I was wondering if we, if we get a, get a rye bread reference in there somewhere. Jack, um, John, are you all right? I want to scream. <laughs> you're gonna, you're gonna get through this. Maybe one we'll scream see. In. I can, I can we'll tell see. already. I'm gonna get one scream in. 
So Jeffries uh, secures a conviction of Algernon Sidney. Uh, Sidney is then beheaded, of course, as a traitor to the crown. Although, according to many, Judge Jeffries' behavior was very clearly biased against the defendants. And also, his celebration uh, was noted at someone who ran into him at a, a wedding a few days later. His celebration of this whole thing was described as so riotous as to be very much unbecoming of the office of a judge. Mm. So apparently this guy just went full fucking party mode after he had this guy beheaded. It is um, so hard for me to keep my mouth shut in this segment. <laughs> <laughs> but I will. I'm a man. I'm imagining a guy in full old school judicial robes with a lampshade on his head and a great big powdered wig on top of it. This entire time, I've been picturing Joe West, the MLB umpire, <laughs> and that's it. I'm getting like more and more like confirmation that this is just Joe West from like old Welsh times. <laughs> um, in 1865, very busy year. For Judge Jeffries, uh, 1685 was a, a big, big time for him. Um, he made waves for a couple reasons. Uh, first of all, here's just an, an interesting little blip on his radar that demonstrates his typical manner on the bench. Uh, he was uh, holding court one day in Bristol, England, and the mayor of Bristol, who was fully robed and sitting next to him on the bench... Something comes to Jeffrey's attention. Jeffrey's orders the mayor into the dock and find him a thousand pounds for being, and I quote, a kidnapping knave. A now, kidnapping knave, huh? So, what he meant by this was during this time, the the chattel slave trade in the the Western world is a long story full of details that are all more horrible than the next, right? But one that's a little less known is that sometimes people and including elected officials um, in these big prominent cities in Europe, if they were having trouble reaching their normal supply of slaves, they would just like press gang and kidnap poor people and sell them. So and the, the slave trading companies did this frequently for like a kickback to the officials. And I think Jeffries had had a bug put in his ear that, oh, yeah, the mayor of Bristol's up to this shit. So in front of everybody tells him, get your ass on the stand. I'm going to fine you a thousand pounds and tell everyone what you're doing in public. Pretty baller move, Frank. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I, I feel like he's going to do worse things. May, well, yes and no. Um. <laughs> That same year, he would be reunited with our boy Titus Oates during his trial for perjury. We mentioned this trial just briefly last week, but apparently this trial was an absolute shit show <laughs> because Titus Oates is, of course, a psychotic liar who will just start screaming shit at and about whoever happens to be pissing him off at that moment. Judge Jeffries a complete nut with a horrible temper and absolutely no respect for judicial decorum. So apparently it just devolved into the two men insulting each other to the point where they weren't sure they were going to be able to continue. Like they almost had to stop the trial. I'm imagining like a classic like eighties or nineties movie where it's like Joe Pesci versus like Robert De Niro in a courtroom comedy at this point, <laughs> you know, yeah, you're you're not 
You're not far wrong. Apparently, <laughs> Jeffries uh, referred to Oates as, quote, a shame upon mankind, Ooh. among other Jeez. things. And <sighs> Jeffries had reason to hate Oates because while Judge Jeffries was fully on board with executing people had they actually been guilty of treason, he got made to look pretty fucking stupid when it turned out all of this was bullshit. That that insult reminds me of um something that a friend of the show Blake said when he was like 10. Like remember how after uh football camps we'd uh stick around and help out like the little kids football camp? Yeah. Um so this is when I was in high school and uh Blake is a, a good friend of one of a uh, younger brother of one of our good friends and um so and he was he was like 10 at the time and and um uh our friend Jake tried to uh, like uh, give us some crap about something, and uh, Blake called him a bag of shame. <laughs> and to this day, one of the most haunting insults I've ever heard. It's fantastic. Oh, poor Jake! Well, he had it coming. How you get? Well, yeah, I'm sure he did, but it's got to be hard to take that from a ten year old. Yeah, to get sunned by a ten year old, you know. <laughs> So, um, obviously, the rest is history with Titus Oates. Jeffries uh, was one of the guys who decided that the best way to handle him, because he can't actually sentence him to death, so I'm just going to have him repeatedly beaten and whipped and pilloried and fucked up until hopefully eventually he dies, which didn't work, but Jeffries gave it his damnedest. Um, Also in uh, 1685... He presided over the trials of many of the people implicated in what was called the Monmouth Rebellion. This is what really solidified Jeffrey's reputation. Um, the Monmouth Rebellion was a failed uh, early rebellion attempt spearheaded by the Duke of Monmouth. Again, this is all more just English noble infighting over who gets to be king. Here's a low percentage um, joke. When I, I thought the Monmouth Rebellion was what happened when Alex Tanney didn't get drafted. Ha-ha! Ah. Inside, inside football joke right Some there. Some Midwest yeah. Conference excellence, folks. Mm-hmm. Also, shout out to the uh, um, uh, Grinnell College, the student workers unionized, becoming the first uh, student yeah. workers union in the country. So shout out to Grinnell. Yep. Yeah. Seriously. Um, so one of these early revolution attempts, the, the Stuarts who were in charge at the time, uh, Charles and James, were polarizing enough, partially because of their affiliation with the Catholic Church, largely for that reason, honestly. There would be, like, a lot of revolution attempts, and as we'll find out, if you know your English history, and we mentioned it briefly last week, eventually a successful one. Um, But as far as Judge Jeffries, he was very, very loyal to the Stuart family and the Crown, even though he also hated Catholics vehemently, apparently. Um... But after the uh, failed Monmouth Rebellion, there occurred what were known as the Bloody Assizes. Um, Assizes being like an old English term for courtroom. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is what gave Jeffries the nickname the Hanging Judge, because a bunch of these people were put on trial. Like over a thousand defendants total were tried. And anywhere between... They disagree on the total. Some people say as many as 700. Some people say it was closer to 200. But that's how many people were found guilty of treason, and all of them were executed. 
even on the low estimate, that's still a fuckload of people. Yeah. <clears throat> so that's why he goes down in history as the bloody judge. However, again, Jeffries kind of gets fucked here because it's important to note that according to the rules of the time, the penalty for treason was death. Like, that was the sentence you pretty much had to hand down if someone was yeah. found guilty of treason. After that, it then become the, becomes the king's prerogative to commute the sentences if he doesn't think the person is actually, you know, worthy of a, a, a quote-unquote, you know, a real death sentence. So that was where uh, it's the king's responsibility to take care of that if he so chooses. King James was a vengeful son of a bitch, and he did not do that. He said, nope, you're all guilty. You're all going to fucking hang. Damn. And Jeffries took the heat for it. So historically, some of his reputation for being a hanging, hanging judge is at least partially unearned. Um, mentioned a moment ago that Jeffries staunchly loyal to Charles and James and their title to the crown, which put him in some danger when eventually the glorious revolution happened. Yes, more English nobles trying to kill other <laughs> English nobles over who gets to be the king. Notice All this time tired. it worked. Uh, I actually, I misspoke in the last episode. I, I said William the Conqueror. It was actually William of Orange. I get those two mixed up. But William of Orange of like William and Mary College fame. That's the guy that's named after. Oh, I see. Um, yeah, so he took over following the Glorious Revolution. They took the crown. King James had to flee to Paris along with most of his other cronies. But Jeffries, as the only high-ranking legal authority, chose to stay behind until absolutely the last minute. Despite the fact that if the new uh, the new crown gets a hold of him, he's in deep shit. But he says, nope, I'm just going to stick around and do my job as the highest-ranking legal authority until I can't possibly anymore. Um, this turned out to be a bad decision um, because he was caught nearby after fleeing uh, in a public house it's a, uh, the articles I read say disguised as a sailor. They do not get into exactly what that means, but I really hope he's just dressed like Donald Duck. I was going to say <laughs> Donald Duck. <laughs> Sir, you don't have any pants on. Hey, <laughs> um, this gets sillier, by the way. Um, he was recognized by someone who he had once put on trial and he said he'd never forget his face, even though Jeffries had shaved his distinctively voluminous eyebrows. Huh. <laughs> this, guy apparently, this guy apparently had some big old caterpillars and shaved him off trying to avoid being recognized. Somebody's just like like pounding like a flag in a veil or something, and they like look up and they're like, You see that guy wearing no pants and a sailor's jacket? That fuck had me tried. <laughs> I know exactly who that fucker is. Who are you to put me on trial, Mr. Magistrate, with your dick and balls out in a tavern? This is Eugene Levy with shaved eyebrows and his <laughs> dick hanging out. But yeah, uh, this guy nails Jeffries, and uh, Jeffries is taken into custody and <clears throat> captured by the, uh, the new king, William of Orange. Um, apparently, after his capture, he was, like, shitting his pants. Like, this guy's absolutely <laughs> terrified. And he's begging the people who captured him to keep him safe from the mob outside because they claimed that they intended to show him the same mercy as he had ever done for others. <laughs> so 
Translation, we're going to kill the fuck out of you. Usually when you're like so like you're like, hey, like please treat me the way that I treat you, that's usually a very good sign, except <laughs> for in this exact situation. Well, I feel like when you have an angry mob after you, that pretty much stops being an argument you can use. This this may be an oxymoron. Is there such a thing as a good mob? I think if you're a mob, generally you're angry. Well, either that or a flash mob, which is also evil. So uh, that just makes me angry, though. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think there is actually a good mob, <laughs> except maybe the Sopranos. Um, there it is. So he was captured and hucked into the Tower of London, like so many of the poor, unfortunate souls who'd shown up before him at court for the last oh twenty some odd years. He died in the Tower of London in 1689 of a kidney disease that he'd suffered for years. Um, in the years since, his reputation as a judge is somewhat mixed. Um, he's regarded Fair. as a judge who he knew the letter of the law backwards and forwards. They said as far as like ruling on actual legal issues, there was nobody who knew his shit better than Jeffries. But he was also known for his terrible temper weird behavior and dark humor that many found inappropriate at the time. The reasons for this have become a little more clear since his death, because it's thought that the pain from this kidney disease, which apparently was very, very painful. It hurt his back a lot, uh, exacerbated his temper. Also, they realized that his doctors prescribed alcohol for the pain. So, Everyone thought this guy's nuts. Turns out he was probably just hammered the whole time. <laughs> so this guy's entire legacy was probably the result of just getting drunk constantly to try and ease the kidney pain. Uh, I just imagine now instead of him being just like angry, he's just like slurring his words. And just, it, really, it, really comes into, it really comes into focus what kind of judge he was once you imagine that he was constantly drunk. Yeah. Um, so his, his legacy lived on in England for quite a while. They actually made a movie about this guy and I, against my better judgment, decided that I was going to watch this movie. So I did. Oh no. This movie is called the bloody judge. Um, it came out in, I believe, see here, 1969, I believe is the date. But it was one of those, uh, or pardon me, it was an early 70s film. But it was it was one of those that was almost borderline. It was a horror movie and kind of a swashbuckler, but really more just a softcore porn movie. Like a lot of those like old Hammer horror movies where like, yeah, there's horror and there's suspense and there's really corny lighting and, and music. But also we're going to have just wall-to-wall titties. Oh, God. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I, it's also an Ita- uh, a partially Italian film uh, directed by uh, Jesus Franco, so that kind of tells you a little bit what you're dealing with it, here. It's it's art house titties. It's cool. It's classy. Kind of. So we, yeah. we we've had an Italian person, and now we've had an Italian movie. Mm-hmm. And an Italian titty. Better than any Italian titties. Better than a Italian film is much better than a Serbian film. Oh <laughs> wow! It's a deep Ugh. cut. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you ain't kidding. 
Um, if you don't get that joke, don't Google it. Yeah, pl- yeah. Gen- if you don't get, if genuinely you don't get that don't. joke, good for you. Yeah. Good for you. Not Try even- and avoid getting that joke for yeah. as long as you can. Um, so this movie uh, is a highly fictionalized account of Jeffrey's kind of fall from power, beginning with uh, the rebellion against the Stuarts. Not a whole lot of plot that was actually, like, legit compared to what the actual... Uh, historical facts where they made up a lot of character shit like that. But again, this is schlock. It's not supposed to be entertaining. It does, however, star the ultimate horror exploitation icon, Sir Christopher Lee. And that alone makes it watchable. Christopher Christopher Lee is in his element in this movie. He is Christopher Leeing all over this fucking movie. <laughs> it is it's just a perfect example of the kind of roles he excelled at. He's like, um, look, someone's got to carry this whole fucking movie, and it's going to be me. <laughs> and he really did. Um, I have a couple of notes that I made just during the watching of this movie. First of all, um, early on in the movie, they burned a witch at the stake. But apparently, for some reason, when they filmed this, they had her tied to a ladder that was like 20 feet above the fire. I don't know if they just didn't have the special effects to make it look like she was actually burning. It, it was like a, a torture device. The ladder slowly burns and gets smaller and smaller <laughs> and smaller, and eventually she's burned. It's like a slow roast. I was like, no wonder their fucking food is so bad if this is how they think you do this. They didn't throw any salt on her first. She's going to taste terrible. <laughs> this is also... Uh, yeah, that was the thing that really jumped out at me, but this is also one of those... Kind of like, well, The Wicker Man, another Christopher Lee joint, is another great uh, great example of this. There's a lot of movies that were made, um, largely British productions from the late 60s and early 70s, where, and I don't know how they're casting these movies, but every woman in the movie is gorgeous, and every man who's not the lead looks like their face was left on a hot stove for too long. Like, just the weirdest, awkwardest, ugliest dudes. Yeah, it's it's a British movie, so they're gonna have British actors. So I guess, yeah, I, I guess all they all look just British. they all just look like that. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a really th- there may have been a couple uh, glasses of of whiskey imbibed during the the viewing of that film to help me get through it. it um, it's method acting at that point. You're you're getting into the character yourself. Yeah, it, if you're looking for a reasonably watchable terrible horror movie, it's good enough. I don't know that I will ever watch it again, but I don't hate myself for watching it the first time. That's about as much as I could possibly expect. So anyway, that is the life and legacy of the bloody judge himself, uh, Baron Jeffries. So my big question is one that um, I'm very excited to hear your answers for. You're a judge, and typically people think... Man, you gotta do. You gotta really try hard to make the headlines if you're a judge. <clears throat> but folks, it's actually really easy to make headlines if you're a judge if you're just brave <laughs> enough. So, you guys are judges. You want to make headlines, make waves somehow. You want to get famous for something you do in the courtroom. What are you doing? So I'm going to um, institute a drinking game in my courtroom, particularly during trials. Oh my god. Jurors and uh, counsel alike are going to be uh, um, forced to comply with. I think that the the rules I haven't totally fleshed out. I know in particular, um, 
you got to be real careful making an objection. Because if I sustain that objection, yes, your opposing counsel does have to take a shot. If I overrule it, though, you're, you know you're taking a shot. And I, I, think, I, I, I say think, things uh, like, bang my gavel, that's a, that's a, that's a drink. If I say, um, move it along, counselor, that's a drink. <laughs> what if somebody yells this whole court's out of order? Does everyone have to finish their drink? Yes, that's, that's a finish your drink. Judge Jeffries would have fucking loved this. Yeah, I was going to say, that's very much in the spirit. He, he was already there. Yeah, and also, he was fucked up all the time I, anyway. And also, I am drinking during the, the, that, you know, during the, the proceedings, but it's not like... Well, yeah, you're not going to watch rule. everybody else sit around and have all the fun. I like to imagine there's also like a permanent game of like Circle of Death happening like in the middle on like your desk. <laughs> and it's like if you approach the bench, you have to put a card under the tab. Every time, every time someone uh, uh, enters an exhibit into evidence, I put a card under the tab. If yours pops it, you're chugging it. And, and if, if it pops, you can't put that in evidence anymore. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, God damn, damn those... Those pictures would have oh, been that... re- would have been really uh, would have been uh, really damning, you know. What? That was the knife with his fingerprints on it, Greg. What are you doing? Why did I wait so long to put in the murder weapon? That should have been the first thing. <laughs> um, I, I referenced it earlier, and it's probably because I've been watching a shit ton of John Boy uh, YouTube videos because baseball is back. I'm gonna I'm gonna be Joe West, and I'm gonna be overly dramatic and obnoxious, throwing people out of my courtroom. I'm going to do the full baseball umpire wind-up and just like, you're out of here. But I'm going to be a complete dick about it. So and everyone's of, uh, getting thrown out of court. Instead of finding someone uh, not guilty, do you just give them the safe sign? Yes, th- there is no gavel here. It- it's all it's all umpire lingo and mannerisms. They're, I can't you're, you're... wait till you... I can't wait till you find somebody guilty by throwing up an arm and then the opposing counsel comes up and just screams at you until he gets kicked out of the courtroom. He, he just starts kicking dirt at me. He throws like a powdered wig on the floor and he's he yelling at full me. full <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, that's a good one. I, I knew we'd have good ones for that question. That's one of my favorite questions from recently. Alright, good answers both of you. Alright, well yeah, very, uh, very fun follow-up to last week. Um, as much last week's you topics see, are a, li- a bit bleak, so I'm glad yeah, we're, we're off you to see, a fun yeah. start. You see why I had to do Titus first now? Yes. Because yes. this guy, like, first of all, there's a lot of kind of background about just how much people fucking hated Catholics that you need to know before any of this makes sense. And also, Titus, just a completely bonkers story, and I, I had to get that out of my head. All right, well, um, yeah, good start to this one. And for our next guy, we turn to Jack John. Jack John, who's your guy this week? My guy this week is Luigi Luceni. And if that name sounds super Italian, it's because we have another Italian person oh, that we need boy. to talk about here. Always a treat, the Italian persons. And in researching this, this... This was the first main character that I wanted to talk about, uh, but his life intersected with uh, Empress Cece so much that we had to talk about her first. Uh, Really, kind of in the spirit of kind of like bringing everything together, this story really encapsulates somebody else that we've talked about previously. Uh, In fact, episode 14, uh, Giuseppe Zingara, in the sense that we have the story here, the small angry man, 
who ends up making a giant ass out of himself. Oh, boy. And to really get perspective for why Luigi was such a bastard, we really have to look no further than his birth. Hmm. Uh, Luigi was born in Paris in uh, April of 1873 uh, to a family who loved him so much. Uh, They had him out of wedlock, and almost immediately after his birth, his family abandoned him. Oh, yeah, uh, that's what, that's uh-huh. yeah. what what we do know. We know very little about his actual upbringing, or at least from the research that I was able to do. Uh, we know that he was uh, born out of wedlock to his mother, Lu- Luigi Luceni. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> his father's name is unknown, but his mother's name was Luigi. Oh, boy. Boy, that's I thought uh... you were going to say thought you were going to say Waluigi there for a second. <laughs> he may as well just be fucking Waluigi as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but it was said that very shortly after his birth, uh, his parents abandoned him at a fondling hospital. Or foundling hospital, sorry, not fondling. Foundling hospital. Uh, which I was going to bas- say, what the fuck is yeah, a fondling hospital? Uh, foundling hospital, which is basically like a hospital where you can just like report babies that you found abandoned or in the case of Luigi's parents abandon a baby on the doorsteps of this hospital <clears throat> and they're expected to take in the abandoned baby it is incredibly sad to hear that right after the joke about the fondling hospital yeah, i feel honestly, like that is an, that is an abrupt 180 in this it, story it's not often that uh me misspeaking and saying fondling hospital is the better outcome <laughs> yeah i, I want because that's that's just like Look, I appreciate the fact that you're trying to take some of the scary out of being tested for breast cancer, but I mean, I, I think um, you're going the wrong way with it. What? Wonder what the burnout rate is like for employees at the Foundling Hospital. It it's got to be bleak. Like you're literally I can't finding. You're just, it's it's all it's all porch step babies. It's all you're getting. Like there's never yeah. any good news when you're opening the door. Uh, but uh, Luigi ended up living uh, in fo- with a couple of different foster parents in various homes throughout his upbringing, uh, and basically was honestly in a very very rough shape early on. It, it's he lived in poverty and started working at the age of ten as a laborer. Basically, just was dealt a shit hand and kept picking up shittier cards. Uh, and at age twenty. His luck finally turns around. He joins the military. Right on. When your luck turns around <laughs> and you join the military, especially at this time in history, yeah, that's how you know that you came from from absolute no, absolutely yeah. nothing. Yeah. So this is, is around 1893. Uh, joins the military and ends up, you know, being okay. He's essentially getting employed and ends up being in the military for about three years. And at this point, he ends up fighting in the first, um, basically, like, Italian-Ethiopian wars. Uh, there's really not much to note about those. There's not really anything, like, military-wise that he did or anything of note other than just he was there. Uh, which basically just kind of puts him in a spot of essentially kind of, like, being poor and then being exposed to conflict. And naturally, when you get those two together, you get not fun, happy people. Yeah, here's the thing about when someone has a horrible, horrible childhood and then you throw more violent trauma at them, they're going to do bad things, yeah. probably, because that's just how their brain has formed. Yeah. 
So Luigi ends up, um, he's an Italian citizen fully, and at this point he's just kind of like traveling uh, in different areas, basically just trying to make it all right and make sense. And he ends up settling down in Switzerland. And it's here when Luigi really starts to get his big ideas of how the world works. Um, And it's during his stay in Switzerland that he develops his anarchistic ideas. That's right, Luigi is an anarchist because he's an Italian citizen and he lives in a time period where a lot of Italians are a lot of anarchists. So you're telling me that we have this kind of insignificant Italian guy who who wants to who wants to kill all the capitalists? Yes. Hmm. Wonder where I've heard huh. that one before. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm getting something here. This is ringing a bell, but I couldn't just oh I couldn't. He he had a lot of peers in this time period, as it would turn out. Yeah. Uh, but so he was a, a self-identified anarchist and a communist. And he believed in, and I saw this a couple of different times, so I want to read it exactly as it says. And he believed in propaganda by the deed, which basically was a philosophy advocating for the spreading beliefs through direct action. Basically, don't talk about it, be about it kind of action. And that's still pretty popular among a lot of um, like leftist polit- political groups, and that's not on its face a bad idea i mean yeah. there, there's nothing inherently wrong with that you just gotta be careful with what yeah. you're doing right like if you're if you're talking about like positive activism and like helping your community go out and actually help your community don't just say it if you're an anarchist and you're talking about you know killing the upper class maybe don't do that at least not all at once maybe um but basically, from what I was able to read, and I couldn't find too many sources on this because I wanted more information, but as it turns out, Luigi, by other anarchist standards, was considered inept at understanding the philosophy of anarchy. That's like <laughs> a super simple concept, though. I saw That's one... why it's so controversial. Like. I, I had one source that said that other anarchists kind of in his circle <clears throat> referred to him as the stupid one. So <laughs> so being like trying to be a communist but being too big of a moron, we're starting to sound <laughs> less like Giuseppe and more like Lee Harvey Oswald. Because that's essentially what everyone said about yeah. him too. Like this guy came yes. to all the meetings but he was a fucking dodo bird. <laughs> <laughs> He was sitting in the back, like, with his knife, just, like, carving diagrams into the wood bench instead of fucking paying attention. Like, he was like, yeah, I'm an anarchist. And they're like, dude, shut the fuck up. We're trying to talk. Like, do you realize how much reading we have to do as part of this? It's <laughs> a lot of plans, and if they don't go to plan, JFK might not get killed in the face. Um, but Giuseppe thought highly of himself uh, in spite of being considered a fucking moron. Uh, he had written... Uh, because I am an anarchist, because I am poor, because I love the workers, and I desire to see the death of the rich. He he I thought mean, he thought yeah, he was I mean, the perfect person. Enough. Yeah, he he had big goals, uh, and his his big 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 get is he was going to assassinate the Duke of Orleans. Uh, they were uh, going to be in Geneva. Uh, it was kind of like reported ahead of time that they were going to be in Geneva and he had this big plan that he was going to go there and just fucking kill him. The problem okay. with all of this 
is uh, that the Duke of Orleans basically understood that a lot of people wanted him dead because, again, <laughs> there happens to be quite a bit of Italian anarchists running around. And he's like, actually, fuck this whole trip. I'm not going anymore. So, and he just bails. First of all, when you decide to to come up with an assassination plot, your job is not done at figuring out what city the person is going to be yeah. in. Yeah. There's a lot more that you have to take into consideration if you want to kill a very rich, powerful person. They're just, that's just a fact. Once you're in the city, that's when the job starts. You don't give up planning after that. Yeah. So, so what ends up happening is Luigi, our, our hero in this story, is in Geneva, and the Duke is not there. And he's kind of just like kicking rocks, and he's like, ah, fuck, well, I don't know what to do anymore. And then a very unfortunate event happens for our previous topic, uh, Empress Sissi, uh, the uh, Queen of Hungary. As it turns out, the local press spots her under a pseudonym and leaks that she is in Geneva at the exact same time. Okay, can I just for a second back up and point out how unfortunate it is that like her whole thing was that she never ate and none of us made the connection that she was the queen of Hungary. Ah, uh, that's some good I just, shit. We, we totally missed that joke. I, I feel, it, it was I too depressing. I feel like I, the, <laughs> the real trick was Maybe balancing out any comedy in that last, like in last week's thing, because it was just so fucking depressing. <laughs> and this one is like zany and stupid. <clears throat> Need to find something else to do for a hobby, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he notices that, uh, that that CC is in town, and he's like, "Perfect! I don't care who I kill, as long as I kill somebody famous." And that was really his entire point: is that he really didn't know what he was doing. He just knew that he wanted to do it. Um, and he kind of like wrote down in his journals, like, um. How I would like to kill somebody, but it must be someone important so I get in the papers. He just wanted to be famous for doing this. Yeah. He didn't. So yeah, so he's not really an anarchist or a communist then. He's, he's just, just, he's, just a, he's just a psycho. Yeah, run a bill <laughs> yeah. shithead. Yeah, yeah. Um, so his new big plan. He's in Geneva. Cece's in Geneva. This is perfect. I'm just gonna go kill Cece. The problem, oh, though. Enough. I'll just go kill the queen. The problem, the problem is that Luigi is still poor. And as it turns out, he doesn't have money for a gun or a knife. Uh, Luigi, uh, he's, his first plan was to buy a stiletto, the, the kind of like uh, small short dagger of which the shoe was also named after. Uh, the problem, though, is he didn't have 12 francs to fucking buy one. No. So again, this seems like it should have come up way earlier yes. in the planning stages of this. Yes. Uh, so what he had to do is he ended up essentially getting like a homemade file, which was used to almost like sharpen other knives and basically just kind of like use that and finagle it in a way that it was basically like a small concealed dagger, but it was very, very blunt and very, very rudimentary and not at all a fucking knife. So he has this and he's like, all right, like he, he ends up like stalking her the day before. Like he notices like where she's coming out of, the hotel she's staying at, and kind of like essentially just kind of like lurks and waits for his moment. 
So the day finally comes uh, where Cece and her lady-in-waiting are going to go onto a boat, and they're going to cross, a, basically across like a small street, and this is where Luigi decides he's going to strike. And if you were to guess how this expert assassin is going to attack a highly ranked official, what do you, how do you think he's going to do this? Well, see, this isn't really fair because you told us last oh, yes. week. But I left out a I lot of the details guess, on how he did it. I actually forgot what it, you said. So, yeah. um, if I had to, I mean, if I had to guess, knowing nothing about this, I would say the smart thing to do would be like hide in some bushes and shoot her as she walks past, or something like that. If you're gonna kill her with a file, I would. I don't know. I guess wait till no one else is around, and. Uh, I guess just kill her with the file as best you can. There's yeah. not much you can do with that, yeah. really. So what Luigi does is he just runs at her and almost, like, tackles her. But it it the exact word that I saw is Luigi ran over to her and slammed his body against hers. He just, like, kind of, like, ran at her and, like, shoulder-checked her. Jesus. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> What's great, though, is that Cece... At this point in her life, is five foot eight, a hundred and ten pounds, yeah, and sixty-one years old. Yeah, pretty pretty frail. That that might have done it <laughs> in and of itself. Please tell me when he ran up to shoulder checker, he just yelled "Wow!" <laughs> and seemingly, at like at first glance, she was fine. He just like knocked her down, and she thought she got punched. A bunch of coins he... popped out. <laughs> They're like, dun, 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 like, like the sound of like Sonic losing rings, like goes like, <laughs> higher amplified. Uh, but no, like he'd hit her so light that she thought she was just punched, and she just got up and walked it off. And I looked it up, and there's no, there's no exact measurements of this man, unfortunately, but there are pictures. And dramatizations and illustrations that kind of paints a picture of exactly how large Luigi was. And Luigi was not a large man, and I think he <laughs> gave it say. all he had. Um, <laughs> in the pictures, Luigi is shorter than Cece, and Cece was 5'8". Mm-hmm. And um, described after the incident, um, Luigi was described by eyewitnesses as a short... Slightly thick-set man wearing shabby clothes with a battered hat. <laughs> this tiny little fat fucker couldn't knock down hardly a 61, 110-pound old woman. So he was actually shaped like Mario. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's so fucking funny. <laughs> Alex, shaped Alex, and dressed this. like Mario. <laughs> Wait, Alex, you'll get this. I'm picturing Lou Costello doing this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think he was full Giuseppe five foot nothing. I was gonna say, like in the draw in the dramatizations of drawings, is he like up to her waist? Because that would have been Giuseppe. <laughs> he's it's the it's like angled, but he's always like slightly shorter than her. And there's an actual picture of two like like policemen essentially carrying him away, and he's like six inches shorter than them. <laughs> so I'm guessing he's like five six, like four five or five five four to five six. He, He's a small pudgy man. Yeah. Yeah. But Luigi ends up getting arrested. He's George Costanza. 
he gets arrested almost immediately. Um, and basically, he didn't fight it. Uh, he had basically... Um, the uh, Swiss magistrate that basically had him... He basically told him that uh, an anarchist ideas were already beginning to possess his mind and a lot of others in Italy. Uh, but as it turns out, um, they really didn't have any proof that he was acting with anybody or in any like sort of like cell of like anarchists. They were just like, yeah, you said a lot of this shit, but there's really no proof that any of this is actually working the way you think it's working. You fucking idiots. <laughs> So Luigi gets arrested, and he immediately tells uh, the judge and everyone he wants the death penalty. Basically, he wants to become a martyr for this cause. And he's like, look, if I die, it brings more of a spotlight on me, because I'm an anarchist, and I only want to further me and not actually the ideas of anarchy. I'm a selfish asshole. Yeah, correct. Here's the thing. If you're going to become a martyr for a cause, make sure that cause at least acknowledges you first. And doesn't think right. that you're the doesn't think that you're the Ralph Wiggum of the anarchist <laughs> class. And to further the idea that he's Ralph Wiggum, he committed this crime in Geneva, an area which does not have the death penalty. Yeah. <laughs> so really, <laughs> you know, most criminals would say that's a smart thing to do, but for this guy, it was the exact yeah. opposite. The only time that's dumb is when you are trying to martyr yourself, yes. correct? Yes. So, <clears throat> realizing that he had fucked up and had wanted the death penalty in an area that had abolished it, he requested to have his trial transferred to an area that did have the death penalty. <laughs> which was immediately denied. Yeah. See, if I were the Geneva court, I'd have been tempted to be like, sure, yeah, you want to die? Go ahead. We want you to die, too. So instead, they end up giving him life in prison. Uh, which, at this point, Luigi is 25 years old. Oh, God. He has actual life in prison. Yeah. He lives a lifetime in prison. Yes. Um, Luigi, though, still very steadfast uh, about his, his place in the world. And he considered himself the benefactor of humanity. He body slammed he an old lady. <laughs> the fuck are you talking about? explain to his uh, cellmate and confidant, Mr. Andy Dufresne. <laughs> uh, as it turns out, though, it was said that Luigi actually got some fan mail uh, while he was in prison. Uh, and it was said that in one letter, uh, a, a fan wrote, uh, This woman was a criminal by mere birth. She never worked. She never wanted to work. She always wanted to rule. She is a disgrace. Which flies immediately in the face of everything we know about Cece and the fact that she wanted none of her life. Yeah, no, I mean, you could throw that accusa accusation at, like, one of the Kardashians, maybe, and it would work. But, yeah. like, Cece's the wrong yeah. person. Yeah. The person who was, by large, considered, like, a queen of the people and, like, was very much opposed to everything that was royal life. Um, like Giuseppe trying to kill FDR because he hated capitalism. Right, exactly. Like, you just, so, you really misdirected your anger here. So Luigi ends up living uh, for 12 years in prison before ultimately uh, in 1910 uh, ends up hanging himself in his own cell. I saw one kind of like write-up about it that speculated that maybe guards were tired of him and they just killed him and framed it. Uh, but... Uh, 
generally considered that uh, Giuseppe uh, killed himself. And you would think that that would be the end of his story. But Giuseppe, or no, sorry, not Giuseppe, sorry, Luigi. I keep confusing the two because honestly, I... I can see why. Luigi lives on after death in a, in a couple fun ways. Number one, uh, the assassination of uh, the queen ends up sparking a little bit of uh, a fire under a lot of like the European like legislators' asses. And Luigi ends up accidentally hurting his cause. And that, that assassination gave rise to the International Conference of Rome for the Social Defense Against Anarchists, which ended up being held in 1898. And this was basically a conference that helped really narrow down what anarchists were, what their motives were, and how to better track them. So this and I'm guy... sure they had a great understanding of, of communism and anarchy because highly capitalist uh, institutions have always had such a firm grasp on that. So this guy knockout gamed an old lady, hung himself in his cell, and got a, uh, a lot of communists perse- uh, persecuted as a result, is, yeah. is who this guy was. He absolutely what? fucked up. What a jackass. <laughs> and one last little bit of fun. So uh, Luigi wanted to be beheaded. And <laughs> Geneva told him, fuck no, you're going to rot in prison. After uh, Luigi dies, uh, the coroner decides, you know, we should really study his brain. Let's cut off his head and dissect yeah. it finally. See, so, yeah, he gets what he wants, but he's not even alive to enjoy it. Exactly. He gets his beheading post-mortem. God, this guy didn't do anything right. I'm just imagining this little Italian whack job up before the bench just, oh, please cut off my head. Please cut off my head. Go ahead. Go ahead. Do it. It'll be fun. Come on. Cut off my head. Come on. You'll love it. There's a doctor in the pews a couple behind him just taking notes. This guy fucks You look at his pad and it just says, this guy equals loony. No, this dude fucks everything. It's like if Charlie Brown decided to assassinate a royalty. <laughs> Good grief. But uh, the uh, the scientists, sort of, uh, they wanted to dissect his brain to see if there's any like abnormalities or to see if there's any like lesions or anything that like made him essentially this angry fucking man because he essentially like went zero to a hundred on I'm going to kill everybody if I can kind of like mentality. What's great though is they cut up his brain and they see no abnormalities. <laughs> <laughs> he was just a prick, after all. He's just well, and I mean, an asshole. Sometimes there are physical changes to a brain that you can see precede this kind right. of behavior. But, again, yeah. this is back before psychology is really yes. a thing. I feel like if they knew half of what we knew now about the way his upbringing probably affected yeah. him, they'd have been like, oh, yeah, sure, this guy went crazy. Of right. course he I did. mean, he was also a essentially an orphan born into poverty. He had... I assume massively like undiagnosed mental disorders and issues, but also this is the early 1900s. So I imagine they just like took a coconut to his skull, bashed it open, yeah. and went, "Yeah, it's a brain. I don't know, dude. <laughs> Why do we mean, do this again?" But I mean, still, we don't know anything about how this works. What are we looking for? Still, even like when they dis- dissected Giuseppe, they found a bunch of stomach lesions and shit. That's disappointing yeah. that they didn't. Yeah. Well, and I-, I looked it up just to see. Uh, there was a 10-year overlap where they both lived. Um, but uh, Giuseppe would have been 10. Uh, so uh, our guy Luigi, just a, a tad bit older. Unfortunately, they, they wouldn't have ever crossed paths in any significance oh if they ever did. Oh my god, the dumbest Butch and Sundance ever. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they've, they've cut off 
they've cut off Luigi's head, so what are they going to do with it? What they end up doing with it is they just, they sew it back up, and they drop it in a shitload of formaldehyde, and they just preserve it, and they leave it on display in Vienna. Okay. <laughs> I, I guess, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they end up leaving it on display for quite a long time before they're just like, look, the suit's <laughs> creepy, and he was actually kind of a piece of shit. Let's just get rid of the head. Uh, and they ended up quietly removing the head and basically just buried it in, like, an unmarked, like, tomb almost. And they were just like... I mean, yeah. The whole I'm, thing I'm, sure they, I'm sure they quietly removed the yeah. head. I'm, I'm sure they weren't walking out going, hey, what are we going to do with this fucking head? Yeah. Anybody want a head? We got this head. But that... That is the life of Luigi Luchetti. Basically... The shittiest assassin who technically got his job done. Um, but uh, the man who essentially had Futurama before it was Futurama had his head in a jar. My big question to you guys is, you get to display your head in a jar anywhere you want after you die. Where are you choosing? Okay, so the way you phrase this means that I, I can do whatever I want here, right? Yes. Nobody's going to stop me no matter how stupid it is, right? You have free raid to display your head anywhere you Okay, then for me, the choice is obvious. The pickle section of a Walmart. Yeah. I, I'm just going to put my head pickled right there on the jar next to all the other pickles and watch people <clears throat> from beyond the grave, watch people lose their fucking minds. That'll be... I, I love that. It'll be great for, I'd say, a few weeks until some some little kid tries to climb the shelf and knocks your, <laughs> knocks onto the floor, and some some poor uh, minimum wage worker has to clean your head up and all the fluid. Um, what I'm gonna do, this is actually gonna gonna be like a bit of a long term play. Um, I'm gonna save some money, and um, my request upon my death is going to be um, to use the money I set aside to open. Um, the first ever handsome guys museum, and it's just gonna be my head. Oh, that's adorable. There's this is one head in it. It's yours. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Love that. Uh, maybe maybe I don't know. Like like I might like Bob Seger. I might let him in. He's pretty handsome. <laughs> I love both of those answers. I was I was seeing more in line with Cody. My first image was my head's gonna be uh, at Moe's Bar from The Simpsons, and it's gonna be right next to all the pickled eggs. <laughs> Barney's going to eat your head within a day. Moe's seems like the kind of place that would have a pickled human head. Yeah. The, the, casually about. The more, I mean, there's tons of, of good possible answers to this question, but yeah. you get My more, first you choice get... was actually the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. Ooh. It's <laughs> just next to a bronze bust. There's just your head. <laughs> I was going to say, I think you get more points the likelier your your answer creates a scenario where someone accidentally reaches into the jar to grab something oh, yeah. to eat. There's 100% chance there's a drunken bar bet with I dare you to eat that pickled head. It's, it's 100%. A, it's a bar's food challenge. Adam Richman comes in, he has to eat your head. Look, it, it's a $200 meal, but if you finish it, it's free. And you and get a, immediately and you get a t-shirt. Because of all the embalming fluid he <laughs> just swallowed. I don't know, I've seen him eat some... Pretty some pretty gnarly shit. He might survive it, uh, that. It's it's a Badlands food challenge. He's gonna chug uh, all of the juice from your head. Badlands could pull it off if anybody. He could, uh, and uh, 
spoiler for a potential future topic between either Alex or I, we both talked about wanting yeah, to do that. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Okay, Jack John, thank you for that. Another fun topic. And um, yeah, I think both examples from the two of you are both stories that uh, uh, have kind of interesting intersections. And um, hopefully mine can accomplish that as well. I'll lead off by saying this. I know we we have a we, we do a podcast where the episodes are pretty long. I know last week was really long. I'm not entirely sure how long this is going to go, but I will warn all of you, buckle down because this might be a pretty long segment, but I'll also say um, this is, I think, one of the better stories that I have found, and I've found some really good ones, so um, I'm hoping that it can keep your interest through the entire time. I'm always concerned, excited, and scared when you when you talk about your process and how it either like breaks you or becomes fascinating. This one, like, usually those stand out explicitly. This one was really intriguing. Um, and yeah, well, we'll just get right into it. So when we left off last week, things were already pretty dramatic. Um, last week I talked about Jonathan Wild. Um, he had established himself as the lord of the criminal underworld in London in the early 1700s. He had harnessed the chaos of London in that time managed to secretly take control of most organized theft in the city and gain public trust um, at the same time as a legitimate thief taker. Um, he had organized his operations of both in such a way that they actually played off of each other to continually build himself up even further. Um, Jonathan Wilde was brilliant, he was evil, he was ruthless, and he completely fucked over everyone who dared to cross him. But, as I said, all criminal empires ultimately are built on sand. You can build them up uh, as much as you want, but they're only as strong uh, as the, uh, the next big wave that comes by. So, I left us off with the question, what would happen if Jonathan Wilde finally encountered an enemy who truly had the abilities to compete with him? So, with that in mind, let's step back a bit to March 4th, 1702. A boy by the name of Jack Shepard is born into a poor family in London. His upbringing was unfortunately what you could describe as Dickensian. Oh, that's <clears throat> that's unfortunate. It really was. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of coal in that yeah. scenario. <laughs> he, uh, he was actually second Jack Shepard. Uh, his parents named him after an older brother who had died before he was born. Um... Jack's father died when he was uh, Jack was a toddler. His sister died not long after. Um, his this mom was not a good omen. His mom had absolutely nothing. They were poor anyway. Then after her husband died, they lost their source of income. She couldn't afford to take care of her remaining children, and so she sent Jack off to a workhouse at the age of six. Go ahead, Jack. You just said Jack off, and I need to point that out. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> no, you, you're correct. You're obligated to do so. <clears throat> So they, they have Jack apprentice for a chairmaker um, who was apparently a real asshole and treated young Jack like shit. Um, at age 10, he goes to work as a shop boy for, I think, so every British guy name we're going to hear from here on out is good in some way or another, is funny. Um, he goes to work as a shop boy for a guy named William Kneebone and spelled like, no. spelled like Kneebone. He is not named William Kneebone. William Kneebone. So I'm imagining when this guy was investigated for uh, shady business practices, the investigating detectives all sat around and went, look, we know that Kneebone is connected to Thighbone. 
and thigh bone is connected to leg bone. So if we can put all these together, and that's the end of that bit. Sorry, that's, that was really fucking dumb. That's much smarter than what I was going to say. Which what was his mom? Susan Uterus? Like what is what is this family? Susan Uterus. Co- Cody, that was very bad, but um, I'm going to let it slide because you felt ashamed of it. So <laughs> that's that's I, all that's important to me. I appreciated it, but then you kept going. <laughs> I actually thought that made it better, but. Yeah, William Kneebone, but interestingly... The problem is I I had to kind of Monty Python it because yeah. <laughs> there's no good way out of that joke. There, there just isn't a natural ending point. I it's could just like keep a, going to the entire human body or... It's, it's a whitest kid sketch where it just kind of ends where you don't expect it at no point where you thought it should have. So we, we've just had one of our... our common recurring here's a guy tropes where in my segments I find just a random side character with an incredible name. And we're about to have one of our other tropes, because, Cody, you, you mentioned Monty Python-type stuff. Table that thought for later. Uh, that's two different things off of a bingo card for both Table That and Monty Python. You're almost at a yeah. bingo. Um, so, yeah, but but William Kneebone, actually one of the only, like, decent people in this entire, like, thoroughly decent people in this entire story. Kneebone also employed Jack's mother, um... I mean, Jack had had a really terrible life up until this point, obviously. Kneebone tried really hard to be a good influence for him. Um, I get the implication. He wasn't exactly rich, but he had more than a lot of people in that part of London, and he tried to be like helpful and charitable to the less fortunate people in the neighborhood. He teaches Jack to read and write. He gets him a much better long-term apprenticeship with a carpenter in 1717. Um... The next five years of Jack's life are really positive. He really takes to carpentry. He was very witty and funny. And he becomes a popular figure in the tavern scene of Drury Lane in that area. So, um, despite the fact that things had gotten better for young Jack Shepard, he'd still been through a lot. He was still young, and London was still a really tough place. And all it took was the wrong influences to lead someone like that down the wrong path. The problems began when Jack started patronizing a tavern called the Black Lion. Good name for a tavern, in my opinion. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's the most like stereotypical tavern name I could think that, of. That is a wonderful name for a London tavern, yes. <laughs> the thing with the Black Lion was that the owner, he marketed the place like he wanted like the young apprentices in the area to like come in and hang out there all the time, which is a, an idea that's fine in and of itself. But I guess the guy was, like, pretty naive because under his nose, the place became, like, a recruiting hotbed for the London criminal scene. <clears throat> and, it's um, just the bar from those Eisley in Star Wars versus a hive of scum and villainy. Jack John, it's funny you say that because the next oh line I have God. written in my script, this very quickly turns from this quaint working-class British pub into the Moss Eisley Cantina. Thank you. Oh, <clears throat> God damn it. We're the same person. The, the bar uh, from the flashback scene in Airplane also would work for this. So... <laughs> The seediest dive on the wharf <laughs> was worse than Detroit. <clears throat> so there were three important figures to Jack's story who also frequented the Black Lion. One was a sex worker named Elizabeth Lyon, a.k.a. Edgeworth Bess. Two, a rising criminal figure named Joseph Blake, a.k.a. Blueskin. And three, the thief-taker general himself, Jonathan Wilde. So, Wilde and Blake, they took note of this charismatic young carpenter, Jack Shepard, but who Jack really hit it off with was Bess. So, wonder why. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> See, Jack's life, it was pretty good, and it was stable, 
But Jack was bored. I, he didn't he didn't love the the hard work and relative lack of freedom that came along with being a carpenter's apprentice. And so Bess, um, she starts to bring him more and more into the exciting lifestyle of drinking, sex, and petty crime. In that order. He he just apparently just starts going on benders all the time. And his work, it suffers as a result, as you may imagine. And it starts kind of this vicious cycle. Because um, he was drunk all the time or hungover. He has a lower work output. And so he needed to do something to earn extra money. And, of course, then he turns to theft. <clears throat> He began- the first part of that story is like I can see Jack, John, and I both going. I remember that year of college. <laughs> You're like, oh, I discovered Jack Daniels, and my GPA discovered what it was like when it was <laughs> under two. Oh shit, those are related. So he begins with shoplifting um, <clears throat> a set of silver spoons while out on a work errand. He built. That's, builds- that's so on the nose. It it feels like it shouldn't be real. He built his way up to taking items from houses that he was legitimately working on for his carpentry job. And unfortunately, he realized he was really good at being a thief. Something about Jack Shepard, he had a very slight stature. He was about five foot four and thin. Um, He had good coordination and surprising strength. What all this added up to, Jack was a, he was very, very sneaky when he wanted to be. And so it dawns on him eventually, he's stealing a lot of shit and not getting caught for any of it. And upon this realization, he quits his job. He still does some carpentry independently on the side, but most of his money comes from crime, eventually moving up to full-on burglaries. So around that time, Jack marries Bess, and he also gets uh, his brother Tom Shepard involved in his schemes. Um, he's such a successful burglar that he quickly becomes a rising figure in the London criminal underground. To perhaps a slightly lesser extent, this was also true of the aforementioned Blueskin Blake. So both Jack Shepard and Blueskin Blake, they had some level of coexistence with Jonathan Wilde at first. Um, in fact, they would fence some of their stolen goods through a guy named William Field, who, unbeknownst to them, was one of Jonathan Wilde's men. <clears throat> they were both skilled enough that Wilde he was somewhat interested in maybe having them work in his employ, especially Blake at that point. Uh, but neither were really interested. Um, Jack continued to operate independently, which along with his popularity is likely how he held off full on confrontation with Jonathan Wilde as long as he did. The same though could not be said for blue skin Blake, however, who joined a rival gang led by a guy named Robert Wilkinson. They became known as the blue man group. <laughs> You know, it's weird. Like, there's a bunch of reports as to why they called this guy Blueskin. I'm going to go with that one, though, because that's a lot funnier. So, the summer of 1722, <clears throat> Jonathan Wilde, he goes after Robert Wilkinson's gang in the way that he usually dealt with rival gangs. He arrested them as part of his legitimate role as a thief taker. However, he spared Blueskin Blake. Likely, you could see it as a combination of an invitation and an ultimatum. Saying Because, like, Blake knew what the score was. He knew what was going on. He knew why he didn't get arrested. Yeah. Um, but Blake continued to decline Wilde's interest. And eventually, in December of 1722, Wilde finally arrested Blake. But what's more, Blake resisted the arrest. And during the course of this, uh, Wilde injured Blake by slashing him in the head with his famous sword. <clears throat> um, didn't kill him, but did, as you might imagine, fuck him up pretty bad. I was going to say, yeah... 
how how do you hit somebody in in the head and or face with a sword and not kill them? He didn't hit him that hard, I guess. <laughs> um, in, in I hate to do this, but that's a just the tip. Like you, yeah. you, you barely like. I'm gonna catch you a little bit. Yeah. It's not real. It's um, a lot to get through a skull. So I hear. Um, Blake still didn't submit to Wild though. And in fact, he retaliated by snitching on several former colleagues of his who were associated with Wilde. Three such gangsters were hanged in February 1723 as a result, and uh, Blake was able to do so in exchange for a short prison sentence rather than the death penalty. Okay, shit. Alright. So Wilde had made a pretty capable foe here, but for the time being, that foe in Blueskin Blake was imprisoned and couldn't do much beyond what he already did. Meanwhile, Jack Shepard's success as a burglar continues to grow, and he continues to have no interest in working for Wilde. Um, Jack nearly suffered a major personal setback when Bess was arrested and thrown in jail. Um, Jack came by one day to visit her and was told no. A bad move on the part of that jail. Yeah. (laughs) Because it was at that point that the wheels again started turning in Jack's head. He thought to himself... I'm really good at breaking into houses and stealing items. Why won't the same principles apply to breaking into a jail and stealing a person out of there? Accordingly, that same night, Jack sneaks into the jail and easily busts Bess out. Yeah, yeah, that'll happen. So I mentioned before... You try and keep Bonnie away from Clyde, and shit's gonna get ugly. So I mentioned before that um, Jack's you know, charisma and um, his kind of work independently um, had a lot to do with why Wild kind of left him alone for a while. The other thing is that he Wild never really collected enough evidence to go after Jack. I mean, since he had to kind of do that part of his job through legitimate channels, even though he would like build up and falsely accuse other gangsters sometimes, like he had evidence they were gangsters. Um, but he didn't, despite knowing what Jack was doing, he didn't really have it on him. That changed, and their rivalry kicked off in earnest in 1724. And of all people, it was Jack's brother Tom who sold him out. Son of a bitch. Tom had been convicted of a petty theft once previously, but um, rather than hanging him... I don't know. Lennon had a very weird sense of justice around this time, and we see this over and over again. Um, Because the idea of hanging someone for a property crime in and of itself is pretty insane. Um... But he got convicted of a petty theft. They decided to, I guess, go easy on him. And rather than hanging him, they burned his hand as a warning. I was going to say, to be fair, it seems like everyone who gets involved in property crimes ends up just climbing the fucking crime ladder. So like, maybe cut that off early. But also, an insane like level of law. Maybe they realized that, that Tom Shepard was just a kind of a hapless oaf, which seems true. Yeah. Um, so... Tom gets arrested again in April of 1724. Fearing that he wouldn't be spared the death penalty again, he snitched on his brother Jack um, for a a burglary that he'd committed, and a warrant gets put out for Jack's arrest. So, this next little segment, even though we're talking about some pretty dark and gritty stuff, the English are still a very, very silly people, as this next passage is going to. This is like some just a bad stereotype of what English life is like. Oh, no. So to catch Jack, Wilde concocted a scheme where his man, James Hell and Fury Sykes. Now, look, you hear the name James Hell and Fury Sykes. You think, what kind of diabolical shit is he going to do to Jack Shepard? 
The scheme was that Helen Fury Sykes would challenge Jack to a game of Skittles at the lawn of the Redgate Public House. Fuck off. Skittles was a proto, uh, a lawn game that was like the proto version of bowling. I was going to say, please tell me it involves eating uh, small fruit flavored candies. <laughs> that sounds like Mar- Marshawn Lynch nails that game. They they get into a tickle fight, and the first one to say, no, no, I surrender, they have to leave town. The London silly nannies. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> so I guess Jack Shepard loved the game of Skittles because he accepted this challenge despite having a warrant out. Sykes then, as part of the plan, betrayed Jack to a local constable, said, hey, this guy's got a warrant, come arrest him. Sykes uh, collected the 40-pound reward, and Jack was taken to the jail for questioning. I wonder if Helen Fury Sykes got his nickname from his Skittles playing. <laughs> was he just like the Pete Weber of Skittles? <laughs> Who do you think you are? I am. Oh, <laughs> well, that's a good reference there. That's, that was a top-notch bowling reference. Thank you. St. Louis's own Pete Weber. Um, mm-hmm. So the guards... That, legend. They throw Jack into a cell, but when they return a bit later to interrogate him, Jack wasn't there anymore. All they found was an empty cell and a hole in the roof. Where could he have gone? Jack had figured out how to bust through the roof, craft a rope out of spare bedclothes, and climb down to the ground to escape. This was Jack's first time in jail. It took less than three hours for him to escape. Fucking Bugs Bunny. You just can't keep him anywhere. Cody, table that thought for like a minute later. Bugs Bunny, okay? (laughs) Who who would have thought the guy that broke out a prostitute, like, I assume, like, within the last year, could have broken himself out? Crazy fucking thought here. So, um, the plan nearly fell to shit because a crowd of passerby stopped outside the jail because, uh, like, it was nighttime and they heard a bunch of breaking sounds. They didn't actually see Jack escaping, but they, they heard the noise. But Jack did have to, like, get by them to, to fully escape. Jack, he's still wearing his jail irons. How he gets away, he calmly sneaks up to the crowd and shouts like, Look, I see the guy up on the roof! And they all looked away, and Jack just ran off before they even really saw him. That is some yeah. Bugs Bunny shit. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> so, Jack escapes jail... Uh, May 19th of, of 1724, Jack gets caught pickpocketing of all things and is arrested again. <laughs> so the next day, Bess comes by attempting to visit him just as a friend, she says, but they know who she is and she's arrested as his accomplice. <laughs> a judge uh, sent them off to a higher security jail while awaiting trial, which was a smart idea, but these idiots kept Jack and Bess together in the same cell. What kind of... Okay... I don't mean to be pro-carceral system in any way, shape, or form, but, I mean, if you're trying to keep someone in prison, don't stick them in with the person you suspect of being their accomplice is kind of, like, 101, I think. Prison 101. I've got to imagine they knew that these people had both broken out of prison before, and they were like, we should put them together. Who like knows? It's like the shittiest escape room. Like, let's see if they can beat the record. A massive lapse in judgment either way, because by May 25th, Jack and Bess, they file all the way through their shackles. They remove the bars from the windows, again build a rope out of bedclothes. Jack, being the gentleman he is, he lowers Bess down first before climbing out himself over. This was quite impressive because a fact I hadn't mentioned until now. 
I said Jack, he's five foot four and very slight. What all accounts say is that Bess was a large, buxom woman. Um, I love a know, large, buxom woman. Who doesn't? <laughs> and um, they then they uh, they get down onto the ground. They then climb over the twenty-two foot prison gate, and we're on their way. I like to imagine at this point, she just like takes Jack and throws him like a javelin <laughs> dart. <laughs> so the story of uh, this second escape by Jack spreads like wildfire around London for two reasons. One, people were just highly amused by the image. It's this little <laughs> this little shrimpy guy um, handcrafting these tools and lowering his big wife down to the ground, and they both escape over the prison wall. People were, like, super amused by this. And two, the public mood was starting to shift. Yeah. See, say what you will about all these people living in London, but they came to a very rational conclusion that cannot be said of, I don't know, American society now. Which is, as I mentioned before, like they were before highly intrigued by characters like Jonathan Wild, these um, very charismatic, authority-wielding thief-takers. But by the mid-1720s, they look around and they say to themselves, like, you know, we put a lot of faith into these, uh, into these law enforcement officials and they talk big game, kind of not really alleviating any of the crime that's going on. <laughs> And so they, the, they start to turn against the authority figures little by little and start more and more to favor charismatic thieves like Jack Shepard. So like this. The Robin also, Hood complex, yeah. yeah. But I'm also, at the same time, I'm picturing Jack and his girl as cow and chicken now. Yeah. <laughs> Ren and Stimpy. Yes, like... Like the, the tiny male getting squashed by, um, unfortunately, a cow in this uh, analogy that I'm painting uh, as like they're crawling over a wall. That's all I can picture. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, and something else I should say that Jack had going in his favor over Jonathan Wilde. Wilde had been in London for a while, but he was an interloper. If you recall, he grew up in a town outside of London. Jack is like a legitimate cockney. He, so he's like one of the people, truly. Um, but the, the public is starting to turn away from authority figures and more towards like charming thieves like Jack. This, as you may imagine, was a troubling development for Jonathan Wilde. Um, by summer of 1724, the public starting to lose a bit of interest in him. And this little shit Jack Shepard has escaped imprisonment twice in the span of two months. But the hits keep on coming for Wilde even beyond that, though. Because in June of 1724... Blue Skin Blake is released from prison. Oh, boy. <clears throat> so, Blake, he's burned his bridges with his old colleagues. Dr. Manhattan himself. <laughs> he's burned his bridges with his old colleagues. He's harboring a pretty strong grudge against Jonathan Wilde. So, what's his next move? What he does, he seeks out this rising star criminal he's heard about named Jack Shepard, and he asks him if they want to work together. Around that same time, however, Jack was approached by Jonathan Wilde as well. Wilde puts his foot down with Jack, insisting that he he fence his supply of stolen goods he's built up through Wilde, and you know beyond that offer that if he did so, he would receive a greater profit than he would by just random fences. So here was a pivotal moment in the life of Jack Shepard. He's still a very young man. Um, so his choices here. Would he accept the more secure position working for the man, or would he continue to operate independently while giving the middle finger to authority? Well, there's a reason why Jack Shepard is a legend rather than an ordinary crook. 
He tells Jonathan Wilde to shove it, and he forms a partnership with Blue Skin Blake instead. Fuck yeah. Ah, that's so punk rock. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so they, uh, Shepard and Blake, they go out on another highly successful string of burglaries. Wilde both having been spurned and recognizing that um, Shepard and Blake were cutting into his business as well as his reputation, he decides he needs to take them down once and for all. So Jack and Blake make a bit of a tactical error on uh, July 12th, 1724, when they perform their boldest burglary yet, the shop of Jack's former mentor, William Kneebone. Oh. Aww. Kneebone did not deserve this. No, this is like, one, like a kind of uncool thing for them to do, frankly. Um, as it turns out, this is the least punk rock thing he could have done. This was the final straw for Wilde. He sprung into action. Unfortunately for Jack and Blake, they'd uh, tried to fence the goods through their old friend William Field, who they somehow still hadn't caught on was completely in Jonathan Wilde's pocket. I wanted to say this earlier. I love that the fence is named Will Field. Yeah. As in, he will field your stolen shit. <laughs> so many so many good names, and there's a few more to come. Um, so Field, he ratted them out to Wilde. Wild finally he had enough on Jack to go after him personally, so now it was just a matter of finding him. To do this, Wild he found Bess at a local brandy shop and got her so thoroughly drunk that she coughed up his location. Aww. Because Jonathan Wild is an incredibly devious man, as you will recall. Yeah. What a some <clears throat> bitch. Here's another good name. Jack was arrested by Wild's henchman Quilt Arnold. Quilt Arnold. <laughs> On July 23rd. And his associate, Afghan Jones. Yeah. Ooh. Quilt. an unfortunate name. Quilt Arnold. Um, Great name for a henchman, too, for whatever reason. Um, Or or somebody's grandma. Um, So, Jack, um, he's held in Newgate Prison, swiftly tried on three counts of burglary. Amazingly, Jack's escape artistry must have extended to the courtroom because he's acquitted on the first two charges. Wild, I, I take like he kind of tended to stay out of it by the time the cases reached trial, but recognizing what was going on, he appeared for the third trial along with Field and Kneebone, and on the strength of their testimony, Jack Shepard was convicted and sentenced to death. And so with that, Jonathan Wild, he had finally conquered his nemesis, Jack Shepard, or so he thought. Yeah, I, I, I just, I had a feeling, had a yeah. feeling that uh, the, the British Billy the Kid was going to be a little harder to kill than this. <laughs> um, yeah, for those of you who have seen the recent movie, The Outfit, like I did, there's kind of similar vibes where you keep thinking it's over and then just more <laughs> shit just keeps happening. It, it, it's the movie where you think you're in the third act, but you're only like 80 minutes into a three hour movie. The Green Mile. Yeah. yeah. So, Jack's death warrant was issued on August 31st. They set an execution date five days out on September 4th. So, that same day on August 31st, Jack is visited by his beloved Bess, along with her friend, Polly Maggot. That's... that's not real. (laughs) Polly Maggot. The the less picked uh, child's play doll set. (laughs) (laughs) Um, sounds like sounds like a name they would make on some like Monster High esque cartoon <laughs> show. They just name somebody Polly Maggot. 
It's 100% an Ah Real Monster side character. Yeah, for sure. Jack, it's um, it's a doll set um for kids who want to simulate crime scene investigation. Yeah. <laughs> CSI CSI Dollhouse. Those are the kids we shouldn't be catering to. <laughs> Maybe getting them some help. <laughs> so the kids who find murder podcasts at age ten. <laughs> that's a dark path to go down, kids. Don't do it. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> you'll grow up to be incredibly corny. Anyway, visitations at Newgate took place through this little window that had bars in it. Prior to this visit, Jack had already been to that window and loosened one of the bars. So, Bess and Polly come in, they drop something off outside the window, and then they go back out to distract the guards. There's there's nothing that says specifically what they did, but knowing what we know about Bess, that probably means that she was showing them her big cans. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> if you got it, that's that's a that's a card in your hand you can play. I like to imagine just because of the word drop, there's just like there's like, dude, there's a big tinted woman dropping a deuce outside. You got to come see this. <laughs> um, so Jack he removes the bar and he escapes literally like a cat. He's so small and flexible, <laughs> he just squeezes through the little narrow gap, but he still has to get out of there. So he then he then grabs that something that Bess and Polly had dropped off for him, which, and here we return back to the Monty Python thing, just so happened to be women's clothing, because this is England after all. Oh, God damn it. Jack, he puts on... I know on, exactly where this is going. Jack puts on the women's clothing, he sneaks out in disguise, and he gets the fuck out of London. <laughs> I can't tell the difference between Wizzo Butter and this dead crab. <laughs> It's a Monty Python deep cut, but if you get it, you get it. So, after this, Jack has grown from a popular, charming thief to a full-on working-class hero. Because they just <laughs> cannot keep this guy imprisoned. He, You're right, he's gone full Bugs Bunny at this point. Meanwhile, Jonathan Wilde's reputation has taken yet another hit, and he's trying desperately <laughs> to save face. See, this was the downside of his scheme. Like... Everything hinged on keeping the public trust. And if they ever turned on him, the whole thing was going to fall apart. Yeah. So I use a sandcastle analogy, but really it was more of a house of cards. If you pull that one away, everything's going to fall. It also doesn't help that he's just like banging the table every time, just yelling explicits while like the entire house of cards has fallen already. (laughs) So Jack returns to London after a few days. He's able to hide out until September 9th when he's again arrested and sent back to Newgate. This time, the guards actually had a little light bulb moment go off, like, right, do you think we might want to, like, inspect this guy's cell every now and then? So, we mentioned Monty Python a moment ago. I imagine all the guards that are guarding him are the ones from the tower scene in Holy Grail, <laughs> who can't understand the simple instructions. Um, it happened twice in September 1924. The guards inspected his cell and found that he smuggled tools and had started to work on freeing himself. So, but they they, they caught it before he was able to both times. So they. Tra- I imagine every time they like grab his tools, they just like give him like a finger wag and they're like, "Now you know that's against the rules. Now we better not see this again." Well, that's not good, sport, eh? So they transfer him up to the highest security cell possible in Newgate. Um, why was he not already there? I'm a fan of him, but why the fuck wasn't he already there? The cell, I, I think it, like, hadn't, like, they just never used it. They had to, like, like reopen it just to keep this guy in. They shackled... You think, 
You think maybe we should keep him off the ground floor this time? He, he seems like he's breaking out pretty easily. It's it's one of those old like medieval torture devices where like your head and your arms get locked in and you're just yeah. like standing like at a cocked angle. <laughs> a pillory. Yes, thank you. Or the stocks, I guess. The stocks, yeah. So they put him in his cell. Um, they shackle his legs, and they chain the, the shackles to two metal staples in the floor. Apparently, Jack was so cocky when the jailer shackled him up like this. He's like, "Oh, that, that ain't gonna work!" And he just he pulls a nail out of the floor and instantly just undoes the lock right in front of him. <laughs> so just to fuck with him, and so they they bound him up more tightly and they handcuffed him. Um. <clears throat> Just imagine he's completely unable to break out now. Like, right, might might have made a bit of a mistake there. It, it, Got a bit overconfident, I did. I don't want to keep drawing references to very, very like niche parts of shows, but it's a scene in American Dad where uh, Roger's locked up in like I was Chinese thinking the same prison, thing, yeah. <laughs> and he's underwater with like a dude with a harpoon gun pointed at him while he's caged and shackled fifteen different ways. Um. So on October 9th, Blueskin Blake is finally arrested. Um, they very quickly try him on October 14th. Wild and Field again coming to testify. Blake is convicted and sentenced to death as well. <clears throat> so Blake's problem, he's not the escape artist that Jack is. Very notably, he'd spent two years in prison previously. So Blake's method for trying to get out of this was a lot less cool than Jack's. Um, instead of escape artistry, his method was more simple begging. Um, right after the sentence is issued, uh, Jonathan Wilde is still in the courtroom and Blake starts just groveling. Ask him, please use your influence to get, just get, ask them to give me a prison sentence instead of, instead of executing me. Wilde refused. Also a bad idea because yeah, while, while Blake, um, his method of trying to get out of it by begging was pretty uncool. His response upon hearing no was a lot cooler, which is that he pulled out a pocket knife and slashed Jonathan Wilde's throat. Oh, damn. <laughs> I mean, last play, of, last play of the year can't hold anything yeah. back now. <laughs> so all hell just breaks loose. Blake gets dragged away. It, like, fucking just a full-scale riot starts breaking out. <laughs> Jonathan Wilde is alive, but they rush him to the emergen into emergency surgery where the doctors do succeed in saving his life, but he's pretty badly hurt. That is a great go to hell you first moment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Call an ambulance, but not for me. For me. Slashes yeah. his throat. So, yeah. Call, call the executioner, but not for me. Yeah. <laughs> so, there's this huge commotion going on. Um, a riot's breaking out. And this is probably a good time to mention that the courtroom where this all takes place was right next door to Newgate Prison. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> The city planner needs to really work this shit out. Now it's the end of Blazing Saddles, where you've got one riot spilling over into... So, Jack is chilling in his cell in Newgate. He notices the commotion and notices that um, everyone working at Newgate was seemingly pretty distracted. Everyone but him, that is. This was the window of opportunity Jack Shepard had been waiting for for over a month. Jack unlocks his handcuffs. He removes the chains, but he couldn't get rid of the leg irons. He removes an iron bar from the chimney, uses it to bust through the ceiling into an abandoned cell above. He then broke through six barred doors into the prison chapel. He, Is he fucking juggernaut? What the fuck? 
He climbed. I'm guessing he just picked the locks on all of these. <laughs> Cordesaw was broke through. He was. Yeah. Recall, he was surprisingly strong. Um, yeah, but that's iron bars, though. That's that's he, ridiculous. So he he breaks through the six bar doors into the prison chapel. He climbs from there onto the roof of the prison. Then he then he says to himself, "Oh bloody hell! Oh, I forgot me rope." And he goes backtracks all the way back through the path, back down into the cell, grabs his signature homemade bedclothes rope, returns to the roof, uses the rope to cr- to climb across into the neighboring home, goes down the stairs of the home, out the front door, onto the street. He did all, all of, of this, he, all of this while Yakety Sax is playing. He did all of this while wearing his leg irons and without being caught, including by the owner of the house who was asleep at the time and was completely undisturbed. He's incredible. Fuck Yakety Sax. He's got the Pink Panther theme at this point. <laughs> this is some Chris Angel mind freak shit. Yeah. I just imagine other prisoners are just like yelling, just like, how the fuck is he getting away with this? Yeah, I mean, it's it's like he's... It's like he's become a ghost temperate. Like, Jack, you made the, the juggernaut illusion a moment ago. Now yeah. he's Shadow Cat. Just he's phasing night, he's through night walls crawler. and shit. He's Nightcrawler just fucking like, zoop, I'm outside. Now I'm back inside for the fuck of it. So he's escaped. He still has the issue of those leg braces. He spends the next few, next few days hiding out in barns around Tottenham. Um, he eventually flags down a shoemaker and convinces the guy that he's a fugitive who had been falsely imprisoned for not paying child support to a son who wasn't actually his. The shoemaker was so taken by his story, as well as the fine offer of 20 pounds, he agrees to remove his uh, leg irons. Yeah, I was going to say, with the with the 20 pounds, he probably didn't need that story. I imagine <laughs> yeah. most, most London denizens at that point would have been like, 20 pounds? I don't care if you, like, fucked a cow to death. Oh, I would have done it for 10. I'll take the leg irons off. I imagine Jack is just, like, kicking his ankles against, like, bar corners waiting for somebody to ask him, do they need help? I would have paid you for the chance to commit a crime. So, <laughs> at this point, it seems like the only one who can stop Jack Shepard is Jack Shepard himself. And that is exactly what happens. Oh, no. So, on October 29th, Jack, he breaks into a pawnbreaker's shop. He steals a nice suit, a silver sword various fine jewelry, and a wig. He spends the next two days pretending to be a fancy rich guy and partying with hot chicks. A a constable finds him pissed drunk out in the street on November 1st, still in his suit and wig and rings. But Jack is famous by now. The constable knows who he is, and he arrests him. If I ever get taken away in handcuffs, that's the way I want it to be. I don't know if I believe in reincarnation, but I'd like to imagine that this was me in a previous life. (laughs) You break into a place just so you can buy a suit, or just to steal a suit, a sword, and a wig. And it's like, fuck it, let's go party. And like, the type of wig it was, it wasn't like a powdered wig. It was a wig, I forget the name of it, it's made of like either human hair or animal hair or synthetic hair but it just it just looks like a long like long human hair (laughs) it's probably like a horse hair wig so it's just like oh like an actual mane like a bob cut of hair so just long human i so i'm imagining he's walking around looking like dolly parton now he's just big blonde bouffant no he's like five four he's danny devito in danny devito's wig and it's always sunny but instead of a revolver, it's a fucking broadsword. <laughs> also, that, that's a good reference, Cody. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. 
So back to Newgate, Jack goes. Um, this time they set him up in an even more secure cell. They load him down with 300 pounds and iron weights, and they had guards watch him 24-7. So, yeah, you gotta. I mean, you just, you gotta at this point. At this point, it's Goku with weighted armor. You're only gonna make him stronger. Every time he escapes, he gets a little bit <laughs> trickier. Saying it's like the yeah, it's exactly the death thing. Every time he gets stronger, or every time he escapes, he gets stronger. So it was just a spectacle. The prison they let famous people come by and see him for a fee. There's all kinds of petitions being sent to King George to spare him, but to no avail. Blue skin Blake. You can't spare him because you're just the only recourse you have is to put him in prison, and he'll be gone in a week. So. Sure, but I mean, the people in London loved him. I mean, they didn't even want to see him in prison. He was their hero. Um, so Blueskin Blake is the first to be hanged on November 11th. On November 16th, they gather Jack to take him to the gallows for a hanging. One, I guess, unusually bright guard says, Well, perhaps we should pat this bloke down first. They found in his pocket a penknife that he had been saving the entire time with the intent to cut the ropes while being transported and escape. And so with that, a fifth Jack Shepard escape was narrowly thwarted. <laughs> Christ. It's like there, there's no notes. There's no, like, asking of information. They're just treating it like this is his first time being arrested almost. Like, they're just like, ah, he probably doesn't have anything to escape. <laughs> So they transport him down the street to the gallows. He's followed by a joyous procession of the public celebrating his life in his final hour. They were nice enough to stop at the Oxford Tavern and allow Jack Shepard to drink a pint of sack before carrying on. Aww. Jack is brought up to the gallows. They string him up. He's hung. He dies, and his body is cut down. And so, yes, after two eventful years as the most beloved criminal in London... Jack had finally run out of escapes. But that almost wasn't the case. We found out later, Jack actually had one more plot left. Oh my god. The plan, the plan was that Jack's friends were waiting in the audience. And after, his, after they hung him and his body was cut down, they were going to rush the stage, steal his body, and rush him to a doctor who had agreed to attempt to revive him. So that's right. Jack Shepard was so brazen he plotted to literally escape death. You, you know, you know those doctors that you hire to 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 fix your snapped spinal column. Yeah, those are good doctors to have on your side. Um, well, as it turns out, there might have been something to it because Jack was so short that he like it didn't snap his neck and he like strangled to death. Um, it was pretty gruesome, but like it incidentally might have worked had it all played out. But what happened? Just... Go ahead. I'm just imagining him, like, in his head, like, pretend you're dead. Don't act like you're choking. Just pretend like you've already died. But what happened was, common practice in London back then was that criminals' bodies who'd been sentenced to death, they were taken to university labs to be dissected for study. Um, Jack's loving public, though, wanted him to receive a proper burial. So after they cut his body down, the crowd pushed forward and they tried to grab his body. And in the commotion, his friends couldn't get to him. Damn. It was a mosh pit surge for this fucker. Yeah. So who knows if this would have worked. But the point is, in a cruel twist of irony, Jack's hero status among the, among the public inadvertently thwarted his final escape plan. Um, for what it's worth, though, um, 
someone or some random member from the public actually did find his body later and they did give him a proper burial. Um, he was, so he wasn't dissected. Yes, yeah. So as for Jonathan Wild, it took him several weeks to recover from the throat injury. He was unable to attend either hanging, um, either either Blueskin Blake or Jack Shepard. Um, between the changing public opinion about authority figures, Jack Shepard repeatedly evading his capture, and Blueskin Blake catching him off guard, his reputation was just completely wrecked. Um, and when he returned, he got really desperate. He and Quilt Arnold did a violent jailbreak of one of his other associates, and um, Wilde had to go into hiding for a few weeks. When he reemerged, he was, of all things, ratted out by a patron of his who's pay- who had paid him to try and find a stolen gold watch, which he had failed to do. And the, the most fucked up part is, like, I mean, he probably just had it in the back. That's how it yeah. usually works. Yeah. But um, he ratted See, out. when did I steal this? Uh, yeah, it'll be filed over here. <laughs> he just got it in the wrong bin. He's like, ah, shit, I don't have that watch. Wilde had not been nearly as sneaky, and neither had Quilt Arnold. There was already a warrant out for him. The patron rats out his location, and he's arrested. So finally in jail, Wilde fully lost control of his empire. All the gangsters he employed gradually turned state's evidence against him, and the, um, the truth of his secret empire was piece by piece revealed. He was convicted on May 15, 1725, set to be hanged on May 24th. On the morning of May 24th, he actually tried to kill himself by drinking a bunch of laudanum. It wasn't enough to kill him, it just made him a sloppy, comatose mess. I was going to say, I bet it made the execution a lot more pleasant, at least for him. (laughs) It might have been, but all it did, as far as anybody who was watching was concerned, it just made his death really undignified. He couldn't hold his head high, he was just completely out of his mind. Well, yeah, laudanum is basically just liquid heroin. Yeah. So, it... His hanging was a huge spectacle, an even bigger crowd than Jack Shepard's. But after it was over, nobody in the public tried to steal Jonathan Wilde's body for a proper burial. So in the following decades, Jack Shepard had become such a folk hero, and there are so many different plays being written about him, that all the way forward in the early 1800s, England placed a ban on licensing plays with his name in the title. That ban stood for 40 years. Jesus. So while that's pretty silly for what it's worth, other historical outlaws, namely Frank and Jesse James, have cited Jack Shepard as an inspiration. Today, although the volume of these works have decreased, Jack Shepard and Jonathan Wilde remain two iconic figures in the history of London, and dare I say, their rivalry remains one of the greatest gangland stories from anywhere of all time. And so with that, my big question to the two of you, I'm going to keep it real simple. Which of Jack's escapes or attempted escapes was your favorite? Oh my god, it's... For me, it's got to be the one where he first picked the lock in front of the guards, and <laughs> then after they tightened it up, he broke out again. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that, that's, that's a fantastic go-fuck-yourself moment. I, I gotta respect that. What what was in, Im- what was implied by that is that even after they handcuffed him, he still knew how to pick the locks. He was just waiting for the right time, and he finally yeah. got it. His old friend Blueskin Blake inadvertently did him one more solid. Is what happened there. In terms of as it was factually presented, I have to go with the one where he escaped at night and like told 
like the bystanders to look the other way and he ran. Yeah. In in my head canon for how I presented it after you told me, it's that his girlfriend shit outside and all the girls were distracted and then he ran away. It's uh, a weird but, place to go with that, but okay. Yeah, I, I think yeah, what's yeah. I think what's implied is that she was like, you know, yeah. squeeze, well, I know, squeezing I know her cleavage like, together and, yeah. and you know. Yeah. Because Bess was like, it's implied like she was like, one of the original like thick queens, you know, right? Yeah, like she was oh, a big yeah. buxom woman, but she was hot as fuck. That's what it, the implication was. In my head, yep. they were into into poop, and she was pooping outside, and then he ran away. You know, if that if whiskey glass to looking awfully well on this story, that's okay. <laughs> but I mean, uh, but honestly, no, all of them are just so comedically like perfectly balanced, like absurd and like heroic at the same time. Now, I'm also curious. Which, at which of the escapes did you not suspect that there was going to be another one? You know, uh, after they took his body off the gallows is when yes. I was pretty sure he wouldn't get out again. Because the, there's this guy has fully reached nothing will surprise me levels. Yeah. He's so if he, had, if he had somehow gotten out on the way to his execution, wouldn't have surprised me one bit. I figured him like escaping during the rioting i figured he would not go the fuck back and would like lay low i just wanted to party it up like a fancy boy for a couple days and i also <laughs> wonder i wonder if he kind of knew that his 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 good luck was coming to an end and just wanted to go out in the funniest way possible which if that's the case i respect yeah absolute legend um but yeah, that was kind of the downside for him is that he needed to keep committing thefts to support himself because that was his life, and he right. didn't know how to be anywhere other than London. Otherwise, he would have just fucked off to a different part of England. Which right. That, but he just couldn't. <laughs> Love when, of the game. When you're a career pickpocket, essentially, you really can't fall back on a side hustle because that side hustle is also pickpocketing. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, he was a burglar whose side hustle was pickpocketing. <laughs> so there's no good way to do it. Um, yeah, I appreciate the thoughts from both of you, and um, I hope we uh, uh, kept your kept all of your interest through all of that. I had a lot of fun researching these stories, um, so hopefully you had a, as much fun listening as well. And so with that, we wrap up our experimental two episodes of Here's a Guy. Um, we had a great time with it, telling uh, three two-part stories. And, uh, yeah, we'll be back next week, presumably, with just a regular episode, which we haven't done in a few weeks. So, before we get to that, um, before we close things out, let's go around the horn and hawk our shit. Cody, where can the people find you? Uh, well, first of all, you can find me weekly right here on Spotify with uh, new episodes of Here's a Guy pretty much every week. Um, you can check this podcast out over on Anchor and Stitcher as well. You can also find me on Twitter. I am at Son of Gravy for 2069. And every once in a while, hanging out on either Jack or Pookie's Twitch channel, um, doing some fun, goofy nerd shit. Thank you for that. How about you, Jack John? Uh, speaking of fun, goofy nerd shit, you can find me on Twitch at Jack John Plays Games. I'm doing a special uh, challenge. I'm starting a new one uh, this Sunday, the first of may i'm gonna be playing dark souls with just my steering wheel oh, uh, it's gonna be hell and it's uh probably gonna take the entire month so uh please come check that out as we've said before jack johnny's got a really good twitch stream um especially if you love masochism so it, 
It is 100% masochism. A and glutton me, for punishment, that man is. I joke that my stream is controlled chaos, but it's also like, how much pain am I willing to put myself through for minor amounts of money? Um, And you can find me on Twitter at Turpin for Prez. That's Turpin the number 4 P-R-E-Z. Follow the podcast account as well. It's at Here's a Guy Pod. Um, as mentioned in the opening segment, we have a Gmail account. Here's a mailbox at gmail.com. Send us whatever you want. Uh, we've had some really great feedback in the past, and we always appreciate that. Um, so with that, we will be back next week, and who knows what next week has in store. So um, hopefully you enjoyed all of this as much as we did. And to wrap things up, Cody, do you have a tagline? I do. All right, sounds great. Well, thank you all for being here. We will uh, uh, see you next time. And to take us home, Cody, let's hit us with that tagline. Good night, everybody. And remember, no matter how well-founded your existential rage may be, the answer is probably not body-slamming an old lady. (laughs) Fair. Bye, daddies.